Hello and welcome to The Tally Ho, our podcast all about classic cult TV show The Prisoner. With me, Eason. And me, Bex. And this time we're talking all about the fourth episode in the series, Free For All. Yeah, so coming up we've got our discussion about Free For All. After that we've got a special interview with Alan Stevens, who is co-author of Fallout, the unofficial and unauthorised guide to the prisoner, together with Fiona Moore, who joined us to talk about Free For All and about his book. And later on, we've also got our usual news roundup from Rick Davey of the Unmutual website. Free For All was the fourth episode in the broadcast run, but I think it was actually the second one made in production order. And notably, it is uh, written and directed, at least in terms of the credits, by Patrick McGowan. It was written under the pseudonym Paddy Fitz. I think Fitz being based on Fitzpatrick, his mother's maiden name. Mm -hmm. But he took the director's credit. Yeah, so there was some kind of falling out along the way between McGowan and Don Chaffee, who was originally directing the episode. And McGowan took over quite a lot of the interior filming that they were doing in Borenwood, and in the end, got the sole director's credit on the episode. But evidently some of the external stuff must have been filmed by Don Chaffee, because it was done in the initial Port Marion G. Yeah, and I'm not sure how extensive the falling out really was because Chaffee directed or was at least credited as the director of the pilot uh, arrival and also did I think Chimes of Big Ben which we covered a few weeks back as well Uh, and that would have been filmed later in the production order I think so it can't have been a complete destruction of their professional (laughs) uh, working relationship you never know with McGowan Um, you can kind of imagine a situation where he was like no this is what we're going to do and uh, being quite stubborn about how um, how an episode like this would be uh, shot and presented to the audience as well. Yeah, and I, I wonder if because this was an episode that he had written, if he had very specific ideas in mind when he was writing of how certain things would look. And it was interesting because we've been watching the episodes, you know, the run up to recording these podcasts. And I'm not sure about you, but I always remember Free For All for its, you know, its political satire that's throughout it. I am, however, completely astounded by how absolutely bonkers the episode is <laughs> as well. It's like it's known for being this treatise on the nature of politics and democracy and freedom, using using the village as a model for that and, and uh, discussing those themes. But the episode itself is, it, it's crazy. There are, there are very surreal elements to it. There are um, some really striking visuals. There's elements which really take it in a strange science fiction route. So it's, yeah, it's it's always an episode which I come back to and it always surprises me with how original it actually is and probably much more than its reputation might suggest. Yeah, every time I watch it again, there are always bizarre moments that sneak up on me and I think, oh, I'd forgotten about this bit, I'd forgotten about this mm. bit. Because the, the thing that you remember afterwards is a lot of the political stuff. Mm. And it's sort of known as being you know, one of the political episodes of The Prisoner. Mm. But there are some bizarre, surreal images that y- you wonder where in in his imagination they came from. Yeah, and I wonder whether, you know, given that this was the second one that was made, if it was also one of the second episodes that was actually written as well, and maybe more in keeping with the kind of tone that Magoon wanted to establish with the series. So I think this almost comes across as a Magoon unleashed kind of episode, where he's basically saying, you know, that was a rival. This is 
where this show might be going and it can basically go anywhere I want it to go. Um, it's certainly a, a lot less grounded, I think, than some of the other episodes, even though a lot of the episodes of The Prisoner are pretty out there. Mm. There are just really interesting ways in which he discusses important themes and concepts, but uses quite a, I think we keep saying it, but a very surrealist <laughs> approach to presenting it. And also, when this was made in the late 60s, it was really at a time when political satire was becoming more common on British TV and radio than it had been before. I think certainly up until the 50s, it just, it wasn't done. You weren't really supposed to make fun of politicians and royalty and and all this stuff. But certainly in the 60s, um, on, on radio, a lot of radio comedies and also on television, it was becoming more acceptable to poke fun at institutions that had been around for hundreds of years. And you can kind of see this episode as being in line with that, but it's also just doing its own thing. As all episodes of The Prisoners do, you can kind of contextualise it in the year that it was written, but the fact that you can watch it today, and, I mean, just watching it these last few days, and in my mind I was thinking about everything that's been going on in the last week or so (laughs) with Facebook and data mining and stuff, and I was, you know, watching this and thinking... I know I'm reflecting on it with all of this stuff in my head. It never gets old and it's because there's something universal about it as well. And I think it's also one of the bravest episodes of The Prisoner because I think because it is arguably so heavy-handed with the way it deals with politics and democracy, to have this going out primetime back in the late 60s when I suppose the other equivalent shows that would be on would be you know, today it would be the equivalent of, you know, the call the midwife slot or something. <laughs> I don't know. Um, it's Downton Abbey slot. Yeah, it's, it's striking that this was actually, you know, on television and this was what he was putting out for everyone to watch. Yeah. And there's one particular thing to mention about this episode, which has caused much consternation for cosplayers over the years, <laughs> which is the lapels on McGowan's jacket. Yeah. If you watch carefully, you'll see that in some shots, the the white piping that goes around the edge of the lapels on his, his famous jacket has a break in the corner where there's like a little cutout section and it's not a continuous piece of piping. And in other shots, it is a continuous piece of piping. And this is dependent on whether it's the external filming they were doing in Port Marion or the, or the internal Borenwood shoot that they were doing. Yeah, and that happens throughout the series, but this is the first episode where it's really notable. And I think, you know, in light of the uh, the milk-drinking, large red phone appearance drinking game that took place during <laughs> uh, our discussion of A, B and C, I think every time the lapel piping changes in this episode... <laughs> You'd have a shot of something. That's that's a brave, <laughs> a brave thing to do. But yeah, it's you know it's one of those wonderful things. So I've got a jacket which does have the break in it. I think I've convinced myself that's the right way to do it because it's the one I have. Um, <laughs> but I'm sure many people have debated this, and there is, well, to me there is a right answer. But diplomatically, I will say there is no right answer to this. But yeah, it's one of those things which again pops up a lot throughout the episode. But that's enough rambling for us. We should probably just uh, talk about it. Yeah, let's crack on. Everest, I presume. I've never had a head for heights. 
That's number one. At the summit. So kicking off with some unusual changes to the opening credits of this episode. We're starting early this time. <laughs> we're, we're not going to get into the episode for the first few minutes. Yeah, the first thing that you may notice is that the iconic scene where you see his Danger Man picture uh, as John Drake when it's been put into the resigned filing cabinet and you see the X's being typed across it. So usually what you see is you see both lines of the X being done. In this opening, you see one line of X is done, and then it cuts to uh, Magoon in the car driving down the mall. Uh, you see uh, Buckingham Palace behind it. Yeah, it's I I I don't know why they decided to change it. I know um, I was reading Alex Cox's book, and his theory was that you know they wanted to put in a, a sort of iconic London landmark for overseas audiences. Mm. Yeah, it's, I I had never actually noticed this before mm. until until we watched it this time. It's a very, very quick change and one that can easily kind of slip by. Yeah, and you watch it and you think something is different here, but it takes a while to figure out what it is. Yeah. It's a very beautiful shot of him driving down in front of Buckingham Palace. And so, again, as we mentioned uh, before our discussion uh, really began, uh, the episode is credited to uh, Paddy Fitz, who was Patrick McGowan, and also he directed the episode as well. This is the first time where, um, although we see Eric Portman as the new number two rising up from his uh, chair and the Green Dome, it's not his voice doing the part of the conversation where he's speaking to Patrick McGowan, the in the village kind of business. Um, it's uh, a voice actor called Robert Reedy who does it in this one. And he does it a few times as well. Yeah. And it's notable also because you never see Eric Portman actually deliver the lines, whereas in other episodes you do kind of see him saying something. It just kind of cuts to him halfway through. Why they didn't use him, I don't know. I don't know. But uh, yeah, it's uh, another snippet of information there. But I think that gets used a few more times in the series. So number six is at home. Uh, the phone rings and uh, it's number two on the other end. Yeah. So first he speaks to the operator who yeah. wants to put number three, two to him. But then he's surprised when number two appears on the television yeah. set as a sort of video phone. Yeah, so preempting Skype by, you know, <laughs> 40, 50 years. It's just a wonderfully surreal moment because they, the conversation is a bit stilted with the operator. You know, is this number six? And he refuses to acknowledge that he is number six. Mm. He talks about it uh, being you know, the number of this place where, um, where he's at. And again, I think it's, it's nice that he's still very defiant, which is in keeping with how the series has been set up. But also the fact that the call just transfers to uh, number two, it's also starting to show that the village just doesn't really care about his defiance sometimes. <laughs> and I like the bit with the video phone where he just appears on the TV because it, it's clear that it startles mm. uh, number six. He's yeah. he, like it immediately throws him. Yeah, because the TV wasn't even on. So they have the ability to switch your television on. There's clearly a camera there because number two can see him an ability to beam number two's image into it. So it's, it's just the idea that we, they can switch on the surveillance at any point <laughs> they want to, you know, put, put a, some chewing gum over your laptop camera. <laughs> kind of paranoia. Peter wouldn't even know where it was. <laughs> but when you see the television on the shelf, above it are these two sort of orange-coloured pottery lions. And there are a few lines in this episode. Mm. And two of them as well, which becomes important, I think. Yes, two sets of doubles of lions. Mm. And these ones, I had a look and I found out these are Staffordshire pottery lions from the late 19th early 20th century you can still buy ones that survive you can probably buy knockoffs as well <laughs> um but they they have glass eyes which is why their eyes look almost completely black 
because it, it's slightly in shadow in this shot. But if you go online and look at them, actually, they've got glass eyes with different colours in them. Yeah, they uh, are quite expensive now <laughs> if you want if you want to get them. But if if you, if you Google Staffordshire pottery lions glass eyes glass eyes you'll find them you find exactly the same ones that they used to yeah so number two wants to meet with number six and number six's response is the mountain can come to muhammad yeah so this is apparently the latin form of muhammad and comes from that that phrase that if muhammad would not come to the mountain the mountain would come to muhammad but when number two suddenly appears at the door, which he couldn't possibly have got there quick enough from being in his own place at the Green Dome, being on mm. the video phone, you get this slightly wise-cracking exchange of when number six says Everest, I presume. And when he asks where is number one, number two replies that he's at the summit. And this is going to come up again later, but if you consider the imagery of number one being at the summit of a mountain... The mountain being mm. a vaguely triangular shape. This is something that's going to be visually referenced later on as well. What I also like about the appearance of number two is that not only do we have the iconic villager badgers, but here you have these rosettes which become common through the episodes. And I I love this because it just extends the motif in into a different into a different uh, theme for the episode. But the rosettes are cool. Obviously, those are uh, associated with the political rosettes you see at you know on voting nights when you have all the candidates standing up to receive the results of a vote, and they all have the rosettes that um, often coloured according to the the party they represent. And those rosettes appear a lot throughout this. But it's just nice that they have uh, gone to the effort of uh, uh, extending these themes into the overall production design of the episode. And when number six says, "Play it according to Hoyle," what's that about? So. I think this is a reference to Edmund Hoyle. There are lots of books which are called According to Hoyle, if you Google it. Um, and he used to, I think, write rule books for card games. Uh, so I think not only is it a reference there, you know, later on he says all cards on the table, but I think as a phrase it's, it's used when you're kind of deferring to some other authority on the subject, whether it's the right authority or not. Yeah, so someone's written a rule book and you're going to follow it. (laughs) (laughs) So number two introduces number 58, who is dressed in the same maid uniform that you've seen previous maids dressed as Mm. who've who've been in the village. And he explains that she doesn't speak any English. She used to work in records, doesn't say where. And there's this old reference to her being a mere number 58. And we've talked before about whether there's hierarchy in the numbers. The fact that there's an assumed hierarchy that if number two appears to be in charge, there must be a number one who is in charge of number two. Yeah. And number six is important because he's quite high up as well. Yeah. Whereas other numbers have seemed to be rather random. But when he calls her a mere number 58, is that because it's further down the pecking order? Yeah, it could be. I, it's interesting to think that maybe they've used that numbering for speaking parts in it. But with all the other background extras, they've all just been given random numbers, it seems. Because you get numbers being reused again and again on on other characters, often for no apparent reason other than probably at the end of a shooting day, they would collect up all the badges and then hand them out the next day to you know, to all the extras. But yeah, I think in this case, it's it's also deliberate because as the episode unfolds, it's clear that number 58, who's played by Rachel Herbert, 
becomes a more important character. So the fact that he has introduced her as a mere number 58, again, it's designed to throw number six off by making him think that this is just another, uh, you know, just another maid who's here in the village who's looking after uh, your flat number six. It's not, it's, you know, he's deliberately trying to draw no attention to her at all. And I think that's kind of a, an interesting way that they're already trying to change the way that they play with number six hmm. um, from the village perspective. Yeah, and, and the fact that they say she doesn't speak any English is because we've seen him reject any association with people that he thinks are spying on him. Um, and in fact, later on, he still accuses her of spying on him, um, even though she allegedly doesn't know what he's saying and can't communicate with him. But can communicate with number two because he speaks this made-up language yeah. to her. It's very odd. Yeah. Which but is... I'm not sure if that's part of the ruse or not. Mm. But it's an it's a language that it's completely fictional. So it's it's complete nonsense. It was written in the script by McGowan. But I believe that Rachel Herbert, she got a friend of hers who was from what at that time was Yugoslavia to read the lines and she recorded it and she copied her inflection of the way that she read the lines in order to give it the appearance mm. of an accent but it's it's an accent that is from nowhere in a way because it's a language that's from nowhere and uh, number two asks number six if he wants to have breakfast in number six's flat and an interesting reference here number six questions the the origin of the food so number two says our oh, international cuisine it's the best or something like that mm. and then number six curiously asks french and then number two responds no international cuisine and this directly goes back to what we saw in the first episode arrival because actually what we have is that scene where mcguin is getting into the taxi for the first time and the woman who's driving it she speaks to him in french mm. and it's it's something to do with the fact that she assumes that he is uh, a new visitor or a new hostage, I suppose, of the village. And he, I think she references French being international. So it's clear that there's there's some indication that Six is trying to probe a little bit more into which side the village elders are actually on by explicitly asking. But it's clear that they are wise to this and they will just shut it down all the time. Hmm. And by saying it's international, is it no sides? Is it all sides? Yeah. It's it's so oblique that you can't really pin it down. Yeah, and that's very much what uh, Leo McKern's number two was alluding to in The Chimes of Big Ben, when he, he has these wonderful references to there being no sides or the sides being the same and the same that he the number six has when he's talking to the colonel as well mm. you know it's it's all very well these these specific references they make to the iron curtain and specific countries but when it comes down to it in the world of the village they never reveal what side they're on and it's interesting that number six despite his intelligence is unable to work it out he's, he's doing his best that there, there are some secrets that the village is very good at keeping mm. um, and this is one of them then we get a tannoy announcement <laughs> from the wonderful finella fielding and this one is so sinister because she says, congratulations on yet another day. <laughs> in in what way do you congratulate people for effectively surviving <laughs> to another day? Congratulations, the village 
didn't kill you yesterday <laughs> or you, you still have your senses. There's something horrible about that. Yeah, it's it's remarkably, uh, yeah, it is remarkably sinister. And, the, and it's, it's just very unsettling because you realise this must be the level of uh, oppression that they put upon the citizens to really break them. Yeah, just the mere act of surviving another day is something that sh- people should be congratulated <laughs> for. So number two references the fact that the village elections are coming up, and they come up every 12 months. Now, I didn't realise this until recently when I was watching it, but again, it could be a lie, because we don't know how long the village has been around. Mm. But the fact that they reference them being annual means that has the village been running for a very, very long time, mm. you know, for it to have this system? Or is it part of the ruse to make number six believe that it has been uh, running for a long time? It goes back to the idea that we keep coming up to, which is it's very hard to work out what the nature of time is in the village. And these references almost throw you even more because when uh, a character like one of the number twos explicitly talks about an era of time, it's very jarring because it's just unclear how long each episode is actually meant to be covering in real time and whether indeed some of the events are actually interleaved between multiple episodes yeah and then there's something that number two says which is humor is the essence of a democratic society (laughs) and i think this is on one of the posters outside the labor exchange in arrival those posters with slogans on that are dotted around the room Mm. Uh, and of course it's not a democratic society that they're living in in the village, no matter how much they kind of have the pretense of having one. And it's certainly not funny. Yeah, the humour is itself a farce, I think, in the, in the world of the village. But going back to this idea, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going circling back to this thing about the 12 months. If, if these elections are happening every 12 months, and in this case they're here to replace the number two, it does, doesn't really make that much sense because obviously there are multiple number twos throughout the series. And it's not the case that each episode is a year apart. Mm. So there is something going on here, which I think is just, you know, it's probably a comment in the script that sounds very good about the uh, the annual elections. But I'm not sure whether we should take that too seriously. So then some music strikes up. And you see a silhouette of number two in profile appear on the television, which is another image that's going to recur quite a lot during the episode. There's a parade that started outside with people carrying vote number two posters. They're chanting number two, number two. (laughs) And number six assumes at the beginning that this is all, you know, just a, a sham that... Uh, the, the whole pretense of an election is a sham. He says everybody votes for a dictator. Um, <laughs> that the fact that they're all parading around chanting for number two means that it's a foregone conclusion there aren't going to be any other candidates. And this is the first time, I think, we see the scale of the village. There are so many different extras in this episode. You see all these people, and I think it plays into this idea that this is turning into a weird kind of rally you know, outside. It's very strange. But actually, the whole root of this is it's introducing the idea of the elections to number six and very rapidly playing a game with him to essentially coerce him into uh, running, which is what's about to happen. And he doesn't seem to get this until quite late on. Actually, at the beginning, he you know he's watching these events play out, but he's not really 
you know, as I suppose suspicious as he usually is in other episodes. Yeah, because number two says that it's bad for morale in the village for there to not be another candidate, mm. that for the public to think that elections are a game. Um, and he, he's kind of cajoling number six into thinking about standing against him. And you can see the cogs turning in Six's mind where he's thinking, well, actually, if I took this opportunity, maybe I could win. But he's he's a little suspicious. He asks, what physically happens if I do win? Because mm. he knows that weird things are done to people in the village. Mm. And he, he's, he's, th- he's thinking that he's not going to take this shot if something weird might happen at the end. But it's, it's unclear at this point what his endgame is here. So a lot of the episodes have centred around his desire to want to escape the village but this is an episode that deals with the fact that he's acknowledging that there are people in the village who are not meant to be there who are maybe like him and it's one of those episodes which is more about him trying to understand how the village works and use that against the village to kind of get a sense of who the people are and whether he can actually you know lead some kind of organized breakout uh, rather than just worrying about getting himself out. He's clearly starting to settle into a, into a mode where he's a little bit curious about this place. And I think the village know that, and that's what they're playing into here. Yeah, because he, he thinks that he can gain information of his own that he wants by standing and potentially winning, particularly when number two says that if you win, number one will no longer be a mystery to you. So... There are plenty of motives for him thinking if he if he does manage to win, can he learn more about how the village mm. actually functions? Can he influence the public? It's difficult to know exactly why he does it because he can't explain to anyone why mm. he's doing it. And indeed, later on, when they try and get the truth out of him, they can only really tell whether he's being honest himself about why he's doing it. Mm. So outside, they jump into a car that's taking number two on this parade and there's people with umbrellas and placards following them. There's a couple of rogue umbrellas in there. Yeah, they're uh, not always the multicoloured ones. It's like, and there are at least two in here, which probably shouldn't be there. <laughs> it's almost like on the day of the shoot, two people were like, I brought my own umbrella. <laughs> and no one seemed to do anything. One which is like a, like a, it's like a flowery one, isn't it? Yeah. And another one which has got horizontal stripes like red and are they like red black and white stripes or something it's very odd yeah um, but they do stick out so maybe maybe that's part of the free-for-all drinking game if you see a rogue umbrella that shouldn't be there that's another shot of something but if if you were the extra who was in those scenes that was your umbrella you could at least spot yourself in the crowd <laughs> that's me i had the flowery umbrella i snuck it in <laughs> but the, the parade carries on and they jump out of the car so that they can go round through the archway to where the, the platform where they're speaking and I'm trying to imagine in Port Marion now where this is because I remember going there is that actually how you get into that with all the pillars I'm not sure that it is so I thought you entered from the sides yeah I didn't think you came in that but I'm, I'm presuming that it's just the way they've shot it to make it look uh, like that because that's the one thing about the series generally is Port Marion is actually quite small and they're extremely inventive in how they shoot Port Marion to make it seem more labyrinthine than it actually is. Mm. Um, again, they don't emphasise how big it is, but they also make it seem like there are lots of 
winding roads that go all over the place. Um, and it seems a little, a little bit more intricate than it actually is. So I, I bet they just shoot somebody walking down one bit and then appearing from another bit to make it seem a bit more expansive. Mm. And the number two introduces number six to the crowd as a recent recruit, <laughs> which calls into question where in the episode order they should go, mm. and describes him as militant and individualistic. But that it's um, he's you know living up to his duty to the community to stand for office. You know, there's there's this re- recurring idea that, and not not in the show, but just in general, that politicians and public servants are you know doing a a, a noble thing in serving the public, and yet for the most part, people don't really believe that they are in fact serving the public. That it's rather hypocritical that they're actually out for themselves. That's just a, a very generalised opinion of most politicians. Not all politicians. But particularly this idea, I think particularly in British politics, this idea that you do your duty and that some people have a duty to stand. And I think it is it is rooted a lot in in the class system and in there being a sort of a political class that has traditionally considered it to be not necessarily a duty, although they might call it that, but almost their right to be the ones who run everything. The the kind of people who would join the civil service mm. or would who would go into politics in that way. Yes, then he, he hands over the megaphone to number six who addresses the crowd and really berates them, basically accusing them all of either being mindless rotten cabbages <laughs> who have given up all hope of leaving the village or people who have, you know, turned over and gone to the side of their captors. Yeah, and I love the fact that number two is just continually prompting him. Say, yeah, they're loving this. They're really loving this. <laughs> they're actually in stony silence listening to him say this. But it's clear that you're in a weird situation because he's, in his head, he's whipping up a bit of a frenzy in number six. He's making him believe that this is a real thing. And, he, and, and number six, for once, I think is getting swept up in the village antics, which usually he avoids doing. Um, But one thing that um, I think we'll come back to probably towards the end of the episode is the fact that if you watch this episode in broadcast order after A, B and C, this is the start of something very interesting which the village is doing, which is in A, B and C, comprehensively, number six has got the better of the village. He, He turns the game that they are playing on him onto number two, and he reveals that he can outsmart them. And it's interesting that if you do watch this after A, B and C, this is the village quite forcibly uh, reciprocating. (laughs) You know, what they're saying uh, in a weird kind of way is we can mess with you too. Mm. And that's basically what they're doing. And I think for all these arguments about which episode goes where in the viewing order, I'm not saying this is the right way of doing it with A, B and C followed by free for all. But when you watch it, you can conceptually see how this would make an interesting episode for because you've had a few different types of episode in the first three, and this is one which is showing how the village is able, on their own turf, rather than having uh, number six have to go somewhere else, like he does in Chimes of Big Ben, for example. It's it's on it's within the village. The system is designed to uh, really play with number six, and that's really what they're doing, almost in retaliation for the way that he uh, humiliated the number two. In, uh, in ABC. And his his rant at the village population descends into a bit of paranoia. And it's, it's 
interesting that earlier on, of course, he was saying that everyone votes for a dictator and he meant that as a jibe at number two and the fact that he, you know the election was probably going to be a sham and the village couldn't possibly really be holding free elections. But some of the stuff that Six comes up with in this speech is is very apparent, particularly when he talks about who is standing beside you now. Mm. You know, some of you are... Some of you have, have given up, and but some of you are on the side of the your captors. Mm. And who is who? And I'm going to find out which. Mm. And it's a it's a, a slightly nasty form of politics that you see quite often of effectively pitting people against each other and stoking up fear and paranoia. Not that fear and paranoia aren't justified in the circumstance of being in the village where half the people there probably are the people who are... <laughs> keeping you there but just in general it's a this episode has it's not clear-cut as to whether six is doing the right thing a lot of the time yeah i think we'll again we'll come back to this probably a few times but it is very much a discussion on the on the nature of democracy and i think in a strange way it critiques the way that democracy works by putting it up against the dictatorship which is in the village and showing that sometimes the way that politics is presented can actually make the lines blurred. It doesn't go you know, that, that far into it, but I think it is almost saying that there are problems that stem from the ideology that drives politics and politicians. He points out the problems, but he doesn't really offer any solutions to it. And indeed, by having number six even engage with some of the conversations with number two about this it's 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 not clear cut that there are two different sides here of the argument and that one is right and one is wrong because this is a moment almost of number six losing his cool a little bit Mm. and it's interesting that he is provoked by this this desire maybe to see if he can win this election which is odd because Everything we know so far about him has always been related to his resignation being a matter of conscience. So I think it's just basically saying that there are many shades to to number six as a character. There's also something going on about the the way in which he's commenting on how political ideologies can grow and how they can be seeded almost in an instant. Right or wrong can drive people along certain paths. Yeah, because he could stand up there and say to the crowd, vote for me and I will shut this place down mm. and we would all get on a boat and go somewhere else. But he he conspicuously doesn't do that. He doesn't actually announce that he's going to change things for the better or give people the opportunity to leave or shut the village down. He's, he just says that he's going to discover you know, who who is on which side. Yeah. It's all about what he's going to do. Yeah. So he's al- he's already got caught up in the political machine here, rather than thinking about what might be best for the village itself, which to him has so far in the series been about, like you say, you know, raising it to the ground. What is interesting in the, in the speech as well is he talks about, you know, who are the prisoners and who are the warders. And I think this is probably the first time that he directly refers to people who are in the village actually being prisoners. Hmm. I don't know if that's true, but... It's notable that he mentions it here. But when he actually uh, announces that formally he will run for office here, I love the fact that in an instant, all these uh, villagers who are carrying blank 
placards sort of turn them around and they've already got his face on them <laughs> with the vote for number six uh, slogan all over them. And it's strange because you realise at that point, as an audience, you kind of get a sense of it, but it's weird that we're, that we're actually ahead of number six for once. He then realises that maybe he's being played. He's not sure to what end because he can't really uh, necessarily see what the outcome is here. But it's great that he looks and he sees everyone with all the posters already parading and he's already got that inbuilt support, mm. which is strange. It's basically saying that, you know, for somebody who claims that he's trying to make his own free will decisions, he has actually been coaxed into <laughs> running for leadership of the village, which is the complete antithesis of what you would argue he would want to be doing, um, unless his sole goal was to destroy it. But that doesn't seem to be his immediate goal because they're selling it to him on the proviso that he will learn more about the place it's an interesting conundrum that i think he is facing and like you say you know the fact that he's being swept up in this it's unclear what the specific message of the episode is and i think it's that maybe they, maybe that's part of it mm. yeah there is no clear right or wrong here this is him just critiquing the way that politics works um, and how it can ensnare even the most unsuspecting people. Yeah, and going back to what you were saying about this following on from A, B and C, and the fact that in that he uses the village's game against them and turns it against them, is he thinking that he can do the same here? Because he, he must realise at this point that to an extent he was being played because they knew that he would agree to run. Mm. They knew that he would walk into this trap. But is he thinking, I can turn this trap against them in exactly the same way that I did when he faked taking the drugs, got a lower dose of the drug mm. and was able to turn the third dream against number two? Is he thinking this time, OK, it clearly is a trap because they were prepared for this. But if I keep going deeper into it, I still might actually be able to turn it on them and win and, mm. and gain some kind of power. And if I can... I will get something out of it. Hmm. Allow me to introduce myself. I am number 113, and this is my photographic colleague, Smile. number 113B. We uh, contribute to the local newspaper, the Tally Ho, you know. So back at home, Six is talking with Two, and Two explains that number 58 is going to be assigned to him as his driver and someone who can help him out with anything else he may desire within reason, <laughs> uh, which seems to be an oblique reference to the sleaze and sense of entitlement within political circles and again this is one of those conversations which is occurring between six on his phone and two on the video phone mm. and uh, he goes out and he sees number 58 waiting for him so number six wants to go to the town hall because he's required to attend the dissolution of the current council 58 doesn't know where he's asking to go so he cuts through the middle of the sort of courtyard area to a board that's got a map of the village on and she drives her car all the way around the outside to catch up with him what's interesting about the board this time i'm not sure if it is there in uh, arrival but it doesn't just have uh, numbers on it it also has uh, letters as well mm. and it's interesting because the way the numbers are printed on the buttons it looks like if there's a number whether it's single or double digits that's actually on the button itself quite clearly but the letters almost seem like they're added on afterwards so you wonder if there are replacements of different people, for example. Something funny is happening with the way the system works. And the fact that there are letters this time 
is important because this is the first episode also where we start to see people who aren't just numbers. They are alphanumeric as well. Yeah, so there's a 4D and a 3E and a 5 on this. Who are any of these people mm. who are between 2 and 6? We yeah. never meet any of them. It's odd that they've been added on because it must have been there for a reason. Otherwise, you would have just put different numbers on there. So there must be some meaning to it. But uh, yeah, it's unclear. Yeah. So using the map, she now knows where it is that he wants to go. So he gets in the car and as they drive off, the local paparazzi come chasing after them, leaping onto the car. From the tally-ho. Yay! Whee! <laughs> Um, yes, 113 and his photographic colleague, 113B. Yes, we get another use of uh, the alphanumeric system. Mm. And why you have them, it's the first time you see people paired up like this as well. Yeah. But again, you can imagine a situation where at the labour exchange, you get two people, one is A and one is B, uh, and they get put together as the um, as the reporter and the photographer. Mm. And he says that they haven't had such a good candidate for year, no, for ages. For ages. For yeah. ages, yeah, which again suggests how long this has been going on. And they proceed to have this farcical interview where he responds to every question with no comment, yeah. at which point the reporter announces what it is he's writing down, except for the last question, where he says, mind your own business, and he writes down no comment. And I think it's interesting because although uh, we, we've talked a lot about the uh, critique of uh, politics and democracy in this episode, there's a lot which starts to come up, uh, which is about the the corruption of of the of the media mm. here and how they are involved in pushing specific agendas, which I think is obviously a very timely thing uh, <laughs> at the moment. Um, this idea of, of fake news being put out by these people—it's, I mean, this is just way ahead of its time. And you can, mm. uh, you know, free for all is certainly one of those episodes which will be as prescient as long as there is functioning political systems because <laughs> you'll always see threads of it everywhere mm. and what seemed as satire that was you know had to be told through the allegory of being in the village you know it's what we're seeing on the news every day now so. yeah. <laughs> we're literally seeing it every day on the news right now as we record this it's mm. it's a bit bonkers but that they they just make up whatever they want to write and as we later find out it's already been printed anyway yeah uh, but also, this is clear that these are the the actions of the village. Mm. So it is it is still using the village as the model for corruption. It's not necessarily saying this is what's happening everywhere. It's saying that this is how the system works here. And again, it adds to the idea that this episode is revealing more about how the village functions to uh, to number six as he goes through the episode. Mm. So number six then sees that there is a newspaper vendor selling, well, not even selling, just giving away by mm. the looks of it, uh, the latest issue of the Tally Ho. And he's shouting, extra, read all about it. And he goes over and it's the exact double of 113B, the photographer. Yeah, but this one, but the guy who's selling the newspaper doesn't have a number on it, does he? No. Yeah. He's even wearing the exact same pink jacket yeah. with piping. And he's so six is so shocked that he turns around and he can see 113B the photographer leaving and he waves at him. Mm. He turns back and his exact duplicate yeah. is still standing by the tally ho stand. So this has been seen obviously in Arrival with uh, the gardener and the electrician. Doubles play a, a very big part in in the village. And I think what you were saying at the beginning is important here. We've got an episode which features lots of pairs of things. We have the Staffordshire lions at mm. the beginning. 
Yeah, um, a pair of them facing in different directions. Yeah, and we see similar things like that building up throughout the episode. And indeed, you know, that theme does play out a lot over the um, over the next few episodes too. Mm. So he hands him a copy of the Tally Ho with the headline, Number Six Speaks His Mind, <laughs> which, is, which is funny in so many levels. Because first of all, nothing in the article is anything that Number Six has said. But secondly, because the one thing the village have been trying to get him to do is speak what is in his mind. <laughs> he won't say it. He won't reveal it. But apparently, I read this in one of the guidebooks, the article itself, below the headline, is just sort of jumbled sentences. It isn't a real article that someone's written. But apparently there's a reference somewhere in there to White Fang, <laughs> the novel, uh, which is about the domestication of a wild animal. <laughs> So I, I don't know if that means anything or not. No McGowan, it probably does. <laughs> <laughs> so Rover appears and effectively blocks his route away from the town hall, kind of menacing him into going inside <laughs> in case he was having second thoughts. So he goes in and the uh, disembodied voice of number two directs him through a different set of doors to uh, a set of stairs that lead downstairs into this bizarre chamber where what we can presume are the council are standing around at podiums in a slightly menacing circle. Mm. Number two is sort of at the head of this. But then behind him, there's what looks like a weird chair with a a big kind of silver triangular back and a blue eye at the top of it, Mm. like the all-seeing eye symbol. Mm. Um, It's all very Freemason-y. Um, all very cryptic. It reminded me of that exchange right at the beginning where they're talking about... where He he says to number two, oh, Everest, I presume. They're talking about the mountain coming to Muhammad. When he says that number one is at the summit, Hmm. and now you literally have an image that is in the shape and colour of a mountain with the eye representing number one at the top of it at the summit. So is it, is it watching them? It occasionally flashes, and when it flashes blue, it seems to... Yeah, you see you see the eye a few times in other episodes, I think, where they cut to the supervisor, you know, and he's coordinating how things are being watched, and they suddenly show, like, an eye sort mm. of scanning, scanning around and things. In this case, I think it's more explicit in terms of what you said before, which is, you know, he's at the summit, and I think... This is meant to indicate that the overall watch of the of the council, uh, the person in charge, is is number one, uh, whoever that may be. A big deal is made of the fact that this is a procedure that has to be done according to the rules of the society and the democracy that they allege mm. to have. And number two goes on about how, you know, if you're a civilized man, you want to follow proper procedure. It's, it's again, it's one of those democratic traps where. You have to follow the system that is in place in order to gain power, but that system specifically excludes many types of people who therefore (laughs) cannot get power. But if you attempt to change the system, you're seen as attacking the very idea of the society itself. Hmm. If that makes sense? Yeah, he's, he's really, I think, making a really interesting point about the fact that what can be presented as a democracy, can in fact be far from it. It's unclear if the people in the village are aware of what's going on, because they do seem quite drone-like sometimes. But at the same time, there are the ones in this who are supporting number six. 
Now, this also goes into that argument about, about whether the village is designed around all of its inhabitants or if it's designed just around six. Because if this is a ruse, it's a very bizarre one involving absolutely everyone. <laughs> um, but again, with all these implications that there are strange brainwashing experiments taking place and mind manipulation, it does make you wonder if the nature of democracy is based on the slightly muted response of, of these drone-like people. Mm. So the perception of democracy is there because the people themselves are unable to understand what they're actually experiencing. I don't think they're necessarily people who believe that they are uh, working under a dictator in some way, because I think they they might just be brainwashed into thinking that this is what is meant to be a democracy. Hmm. And you get another another reference of according to Hoyle, which if um, when you were saying that it was uh, rules of card games, hmm. again, it comes back to this this idea that number two says of, well, these are the rules and we must pl- we must follow them mm. in order to be civilised, that, that the rules exist and, sorry, that's what they are. Mm. And, of course, you can't do anything outside that system without it becoming a revolution. And it's interesting that in Six's big rant against the Taylor's dummies, <laughs> who apparently have been there before number two even arrived... He says this fast, this 20th century Bastille, <laughs> pretending to be a pocket democracy. And of course, the Bastille not only being the French prison, but the storming of which was the beginning of the French Revolution. So again, I think we're heading to the point where you're right. Number six's play here is to see whether he can potentially turn the tables on uh, on the village. Again, maybe he thinks, I'm going to do another ABC on them. That is a term people use. <laughs> it's the I'm going to use now. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to do an ABC on you now. The old switcheroo. <laughs> but it's interesting that, you know, it is starting to reveal what his thinking is, but I still think he is unclear of what the parameters of the villagers' games actually are. And it's strange that he believes in some way that the village does have an ideology which it sticks to. Because certainly when you speak to number twos like Leo McKern, he does have a very strict belief in what the village is doing. And mm. I wonder if this is the moment where Six is realising that maybe everyone is being played. So, you know, the number two and the council are actually performing things under the guise of them believing that this is what is right for the village. But there's some higher power which is controlling how all these things are actually playing out. And I love the part where number two calls for a vote that they're going to put six through this truth test. And he says, all those in favour? And nobody says or does anything. (laughs) And then he says, carried unanimously. (laughs) But nobody has said or done anything. Which is the nature of a real democracy. (laughs) (laughs) I think this is the moment when it starts getting very trippy in this episode. I'm not sure how much you can really trust the events that take place after this but you have number two maniacally hitting his gavel on the table (laughs) as number six starts spinning around whilst the camera is spinning around number six and he's just whirling around again and again and again and then he's uh spinning a lot so much that he then kind of seems to descend through the floor into a lower chamber which has this red corridor and it just cuts from him spinning around in the 
council chamber to spinning around in this bizarre red room uh, underneath it. Ah, uh, Red Room. Yeah, Twin Peaks reference. First yeah. one of the episode, <laughs> but not the last. <laughs> this is merely the truth test, and there's no need to be alarmed. Why did you wish to run for electoral office? So he staggers down this red corridor with these kind of handles from the ceiling, almost like a, a carriage on the tube, mm. you know? And when the door's open and the green light shines through... He's in the Labour Exchange building. And this makes no geographic sense because he's underground and the Labour Exchange is neither underground nor that close to the council building. But I think there's an argument that maybe something happens to him when he goes through the floor. Yeah. Like maybe he just faints at the top and then they bring him somewhere else. Mm. Um, but again, it's just it's part of how disorienting this whole experience is meant to be. Mm. And he encounters number 26, who's been hired from the civil service, apparently. We don't know which civil service. Also, what's the deal with this guy wearing a morning suit? Why is he dressed like he's going to a wedding? (laughs) Nobody else is dressed like that. But he immediately tries to be very conciliatory. He says, you know, I could be a friend. It doesn't mean that we're on their side, you know. The community still has to live, you still have to live. And... The first sign that something is really very wrong with number six is that when 26 offers him tea and asks how much sugar he takes, number six gives a straight answer when he Mm. says that he doesn't take any sugar. And normally number six would never give a straight answer Mm. to anybody for anything. If you think back to Arrival and the, the barrage of questions that he withstood... And just kept coming back with ways of avoiding the question or turning the question around or giving a non-answer. At this point, his guard is clearly down. Something's clearly wrong because he instinctively just gives the answer, the Mm. true answer, without putting up a fight. I wonder if part of the villagers' game here is to confuse number six into submission to their games. Maybe they've been aware that the minute they try and take him on when he's himself when he's fully conscious he he fights back too much that's something that they cannot really work with whereas here they are coercing him into running for office and then actually almost bending their own rules a little bit because they always say oh we don't want to be too savage with him and you know here they are they are deliberately breaking him it's interesting that he is starting to lose his ability to exercise his own free will whilst also certainly later in the episode spouting all kinds of nonsense when he's trying to win the election designed to encourage people to uh, to embrace their free will in the village and take control of the situation by voting for him hmm. there's this weird sort of one-sided conversation where 26 starts saying, oh, you don't take sugar because you're afraid of death, you're afraid of yourself. And he sort of puts words into number six's mouth and then agrees with them and says, oh, yes, it's good you're being honest because I'm look how honest I'm being with you. <laughs> um, when there's no honesty whatsoever going on in the room, apart from the fact that he doesn't take sugar in his tea. Cut back to number two, who is in the sort of control room, and he's getting a phone call from someone who is anxious that... 
this experiment is getting a bit out of hand and uh, apparently they're not supposed to damage the tissue, presumably the brain tissue, mm. with what they're doing and they're only going to go with stage one of whatever this experiment is. Which reflects number six's original concern, you know, what will happen to me physically. And when we're watching two have the phone call, in the background you've got the silhouette against the brightly coloured background of six in the chair and 26 interrogating him. And it's another silhouette like the one on television mm. at the very beginning. And then back in the back in the labour exchange, when the truth test begins, you see the silhouette of number six with the blue background and the, and the square and the circle mm. coming at him. So there's all, all these strange, surreal silhouette images going on in this episode. Yeah, so this is perhaps one of the most surreal images of the series, I think. Quite an iconic one as well. Uh, which is the truth test being administered by number 26. So 26 buzzes something, which seems to give number six, who's sitting down, a shock, and he convulses and goes back in his chair. And he's almost in a slightly catatonic state. 26 starts asking him questions about why he ran for office, what he, what his goals were, whether he was uh, wanting to do it for the people, whether he was actually trying to use this as a means to organise a, a breakout of the village from you know, people. The way it's represented is, is wonderful. So uh, you've spoken about the silhouettes. What we have is a large uh, silhouette of Patrick McGowan, and we have two uh, lines coming out at like a, a 45 degree angle from his head or near his eyes, I think. And these two straight lines uh, have two things on them. There's a circle on the top, and there's a square on the bottom. And these two silhouette shapes, they move along these lines or wires as the questions are being asked. And I presume number six is thinking what his answers are, or at least trying to convince himself or prevent the village reading his mind in some kind of way. And it's strange. It's one of those odd things. So far, we've seen silhouettes of the people who are in a room. But this is the first time we're seeing silhouettes where there's something odd about them because those two lines and the circle and the, and the um, square aren't actually there. So that's what's kind of surreal as well. You're seeing something happening to a person and it's like one of those weird things where the shadow doesn't match, mm. um, which is very unsettling. And also the last time we saw the Labour Exchange in Arrival, there's that funny bit where they ask him to put a, a sort of circular peg into a hole and the hole mm. turns into a square as he's yeah. doing it yeah so we're seeing the same imagery pop up again and as these questions are being asked you see these things going back and forth and every time number 26 says you know that you can't you can't lie or, or something along those lines you see that six is clearly sub you know subconsciously trying to will this thing to work mm. in the, the right way but he can't as the questions continue what's really interesting is that both the circle and the square eventually both slide down these two lines and both of them enter his mind mm. which i presume is indicative of sort of the line between lies and the truth actually becoming blurred in his own head so this part of mind manipulation appears to have worked but actually the fact that this is a forerunner to him actually being in the election implies that one of the things that needs to happen before you can actually run for office is you need to be unclear where the line is. <laughs> you can try and fight it. You can try and manipulate your, you know, the result here. 
but ultimately you have to submit to the fact that both of these two concepts essentially become one and the same in your head and the test itself is really weird so i i presume it's something to do with a measure of one's integrity i suppose because it's it's almost asking him to decide whether he is lying to himself or not because he's not actually giving any verbal answers just thinking of things mm. and it's implied that he is giving justification to his actions which number 26 is uh, discussing and that he he sometimes believes that the justification is correct and sometimes he doesn't believe it's correct I don't know how else to put it other than, you know, it's a measure of Six's integrity and the fact that, again, both the circle and the square merge into his head at the same time implies that maybe he's losing part of that during this um, experiment. Mm. And you can see the mental strain as he tries to resist it because there's that one brief moment where both the square and the circle start to go backwards mm. up the lines. Um, it's like he's trying to resist it in the same way as he was trying to resist the diluted drug an A, B and C, but this time he can't succeed. And one bit of imagery the truth test does remind me of, and this is a very tangential reference, is in part 17 of season three of Twin Peaks. There is a wonderful scene involving Agent Cooper coming across the entity formerly known as Philip Jeffries. And they have this, this shot of a figure of eight made out of smoke. And inside it is a ball which is rolling around. The figure of eight representing infinity. And then, well, the ball, no one's sure you know, what that's about. But I just like the idea of that silhouette of the circle. Because it just, it, it just reminds me of that. That's mainly because I watch Twin Peaks all the time. <laughs> but one thing I don't really understand here. You know, if they are able to read his thoughts, you know, you kind of wonder why they haven't used that to ask him, you know, why did he resign? <laughs> Although they have technically tried these mind experiments on him before, you know, mm. notably in A, B and C. It's interesting that, that sometimes it does happen throughout the series. It's it's interesting that the village has really interesting technology, but they can be misguided as to how to use it to its most effective nature to crack number six. Of course, if he if they did read his mind and he said why he resigned, that probably ends the series as well. <laughs> that image of the lines going into the silhouette of his head is is iconic and it's also used as the cover art for Chris Rodley's wonderful documentary In My Mind. Yeah, so quick plug, check out our episode where we talked to Chris Rodley a few weeks back. <laughs> Thanks for the tea. Anytime. Voting for me, of course. Naturally. We sing. So when number six comes around from the truth test, he also comes around to the idea of campaigning and becomes a sort of platitude-spouting perfect <laughs> candidate. Uh, there's another parade going on outside, but this time when 113 and 113B jump on him to ask questions, he's very happy to, to smile and answer anything that they have with just sort of non-answers, really. Yeah, but to add to the farcical nature of what's going on in the village and, and in this episode 113 and 113B have switched places yeah. because now the one who was the reporter is now the photographer and the photographer is the reporter <laughs> so whether there's a moment here where actually everything is just turned on its head and this is how he's perceiving everything just going crazy or it is actually what they're doing in order to manipulate the situation it is kind of unclear but again is it also just a critique of the nature of the well well the fluidity with which uh, the media treats their reporting uh, within the village as a means to manipulate how things are presented to its citizens. Mm. 
And then back at home, he sees himself giving a speech on TV as part of the lunchtime news. And he watches himself give this speech and then he mimics the be seeing you salute to himself as he's doing it. Mm. He's saluting his own double on camera, mm. almost. Or himself recorded on camera. But now when you see the silhouette of the election, whereas before it was just number two, now it's number two and number six, both in profile, both looking in opposite directions. And it, it basically makes it look like an image of Janus, hmm. the Roman god, who is a god of beginnings, gates, transitions, time, duality, doorways, passages, and endings. So... <laughs> it's kind of a catch-all, that one. Yeah, but it's a transition and it's a duality, and those are the two things that, that are sort of common in this episode. Hmm. He, Janus has two faces because he can look both backwards in time and forwards into the future at the same time but is effectively just one god. It's not two gods. And here you have this image of these two candidates, the implication being that it's really just the same thing. Hmm. I'm actually wondering, though, when he's watching himself on TV, is he actually... So I couldn't tell. His head is bobbing a little bit. Is he actually meant to be giving that speech? Because behind him, it looks like the archway, one of the archways in the village. That's true. But also we know that when number two was on his video phone... He was outside the door some of the, at some point because yeah. he was able to just turn up at the house. I like I wasn't sure whether he was kind of nodding along to it, or if he's meant to be saying it live. And it's something to do with the fact they've introduced this communication system in this episode where people are seemingly talking live and also uh, appearing on screens. It's almost like he's watching it back as it's happening. And then he has this conversation with number fifty-eight, and so number six starts coming up with these pro-village slogans like obey the rules and we will take good care of you as if he's trying to explain this to 58 but what seems to make something snap is when he starts to learn how to say be seeing you in her made-up language and things start to go a bit trippy everything goes sort of echoing and he clearly goes into a sort of fight or flight mode and just legs it basically I wonder if there's something funny about the fact that he's able, obviously, now to speak this language. Is it just as gibberish as, you know, the language which he's spouting as a political candidate as well? Is that mm. what, you know, is that what they're really trying to say here? That he is now well versed in the uh, in the nonsense speak, which um, which he's being programmed to uh, to say. Mm. But hold on, here comes the obligatory action sequence. <laughs> We can't get away without one. And this time, speedboat versus helicopter chase. <laughs> Yay! So the action music begins, and we know that there's going to be some crazy thing happening. And he uh, he jumps in the car, he dashes off, gets in a speedboat, and has a punch-up with the, the driver and another random village dude in their boat as he tries to drive the speedboat off all the while being followed by a helicopter containing number two, speaking to him over a loudspeaker. And there's there's a wonderful bit in this. So apparently the speedboat was owned by a man named Brian Axworthy, who was local to Port Marion. And in some of the wide shots that you see, he's the one driving the boat, which means he must be the one in number six's clothes, because six is driving the boat for quite a lot of this. 
And there's a moment where this guy, Brian Axworthy, who was not a trained stuntman at all, he was just somebody who owned this speedboat and could drive it, he's supposed to be having a fight with the two other men in the boat who are stuntmen, and he's supposed to punch him in the face, but he really does punch (laughs) him in the face. (laughs) And apparently he was mortified about this afterwards. But the uh, the people in the helicopter who are following it shouted down, no, it looks great, it looks great. And so I, I think that could be the shot that you actually see mm. in the episode where he turns around and punches the guy square in the face who's uh, coming up <laughs> behind him. It's great. <laughs> uh, so Six kind of goes uh, overboard because he sees Rover appearing. And he's starting to well try and swim away. At this point, obviously Rover is being activated by the supervisor back in the control room and his it's not like it's slowed down but his swimming strokes just become a lot slower and he's not really making that much progress as as rover emerges sort of behind him looming over him and i think it's kind of strange because he starts to kind of look quite glassy-eyed and a bit confused and you get then a sequence which is very very strange because rover kind of goes over him and you see number six's face pressed up against the plastic and for the first time again it just shows how trippy this whole thing is we get this bizarre view of what looks like the view of number six from rover's perspective so we're kind of looking down on somebody who is drowning against the surface of rover sort of facing upwards towards the camera and it's like this weird green glow implying that inside it's like there is something sentient almost inside uh, rover which is observing what it is doing to uh, to number six and it just all becomes very very strange it's unlike just a straightforward weirdness of seeing face pressed up against the rubber this is like uh, showing almost how all-consuming rover actually is And then it cuts to Rover and two little mini Rovers, much like the ones that carried Nadia away in Chimes of Big Ben, Mm. uh, dragging number six through the water. As again, he's incoherently babbling all these uh, campaign slogans, which he's been saying all along. So it's almost like he, he had a moment of clarity when he was back in his flat saying, be seeing you in this bizarre fake language that number 58 speaks kind of triggered something in him. He tried to make a break for it. But then now he's been brought back under control again. He's very subdued and he's back in the mode which I think the village want him in, which is to be this ideal candidate uh, in the village elections as he's dragged back through the water and back to shore. So then he's carted off to hospital to recover from the effects of Rover and he has a trippy dream sequence where he relives some of the events of the campaign. But it ends with you hearing the I am not a number, I am a free man quote that's actually from the opening credits. Yeah, which is very, very bizarre. It's also, I think, earlier in the episode, you know, when he's talking to the the council in front of number two, I think there he also says, whose side are you on as well? Again, I'm not sure if it's the exact same version of the line, the same, uh, the same edit, but it does sound like it's the same delivery that he used in the opening credits as well. So... Again, it's it's odd that he's, on one hand, he is, you know, his brain is processing the election that he's being drawn into. On the other hand, he's still aware of who he is. And it's that conflict which, again, implies that, you know, number six is a stronger character than the village probably hopes. But ultimately, he is 
still going down the road of being the brainwashed candidate for uh, uh, for this sort of faux election which is taking place. So after what seems like some brainwashing from his bedroom light, <laughs> he becomes a uh, perfect candidate again. He gives a really creepy speech standing on the stone boat. He talks about if you give information then you can have everything that you want. You can partake of the most hazardous sports. <laughs> Where did that come from? Who wants to partake of hazardous sports anyway? I mean, I know he likes playing that crazy trampoline thing. Kosho. Kosho, that's the one. But I don't think it's for everyone. (laughs) Uh, And it says, winter, spring, summer or fall, they can all be yours all the time. I mean, these things are impossible. Hmm. He's promising them impossible, nonsensical, unattainable things that can't possibly be delivered. And then you you get a classic piece of tit-for-tat campaigning between number two and number six, where number two accuses six of not having the administrative experience of manipulating a community like that one, and therefore shouldn't be trusted. Whereas number six accuses number two of working to his limit. He sets a political trap question for him by saying what do you do with your spare time it's a classic trap because if they say i don't have any spare time you say ah working to your limit you're working too hard and but if you say that you do do something with your spare time and they say i see you're not dedicated enough to Mm. be spending all of your time working for the people but six has got a nice entourage of campaign supporters following him around now whereas number two's crowds are dwindling So we next see Six with number 58 at what looks like literally a village pub, (laughs) uh, which is uh, called the Cat and Mouse. And the waitress comes over and she's actually wearing a number six rosette. And he asks her if uh, she's going to vote for him. And she says yes. And she's offering non-alcoholic was it gin, vodka and whiskey Mm. or something. But he wants an alcoholic drink and he starts becoming quite disorderly. Uh, because he's not getting an alcoholic drink that's, that's actually what he wants. Yeah, he's he's, act, he's acting drunk already, even though he can't be. Yeah, and it's clear that... Well, it's odd, because again, he's slipped into that mode where he's kind of... It's unclear who's in control of his personality at the moment. He seems mm. very um, irrational, almost. Um, but we know this is probably something that's linked to um, you know the experiments that are being performed on him here as part of this sort of brain game on making him into the perfect candidate. 58 senses that she needs to get him out of there pretty quickly. So she gets him up. And that, yeah, and you're right, as, as she's kind of holding him and taking him to get his coat, he's a bit stumbly and he's sort of shouting a bit like he's drunk, even though he hasn't had any uh, any alcoholic drinks at all. Yeah. There's something strange about this place. It's called the Cat and Mouse, even though none of the other places in the village have names. They're just village stores. Mm. So, But it's not a village pub. It's the Cat and Mouse. And it's got a weird silhouette of a cat outside. There's a sign outside that says members only. So there's some kind of members club. And again, so it's it's like a place where politicians want to hang out mm. and shout at people because he can't get what he wants. But the, the first shot that you see in here is of a lion statue. It's like a white porcelain lion sitting on a chair that's turning back and forth, pretending to be playing the drums, but the drums are actually playing. And in fact, the first shot is a close-up of 
the thing banging the drum, and there are several close-ups of banging drums in this. All the other ones have been in the parades that are following number two and number six around on the campaign trail, where you specifically see a close-up of someone hitting the side of a drum. But this time, when you see the drum being hit, it moves up, and it's a porcelain lion rotating around on this chair, pretending to play the drums. It's weird. It's really weird. And it's, an, it's another lion. We've already mm. had one pair of lions. And in fact, there is another pair of lions in this because there is a second lion on the left-hand side by the cloakroom as they're leaving. It could be the exact same lion, just using both shots. But it looks like another pair of two lions that are in the cat and mouse. So not only are the village seemingly cloning people, but they're also cloning porcelain statues as well. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> lion and lion bee. <laughs> Oh, the problem is, I although I could find out the previous ones were that Staffordshire pottery, with this one I tried to figure out what it was, I couldn't find it. But I did spend some time after googling China Lion, just listening to Laura Solon sketches <laughs> <laughs> about China Lion. And that is a very obscure reference for any Laura Solon fans out there. <laughs> so... Number 58 takes him on a quest for alcohol to this <laughs> mysterious cave that's somewhere in the village. And inside is a scientist who's got some kind of alcoholic still set up. Mm-hmm. And number two is already in there. But what I really like is that when he comes in and the uh, scientist asks me if he'd like a large or a small, he says, I'll have a double. <laughs> it's, an, it's another double, another pair in the episode. So two is in there drinking and pretending to be drunk. And he refers to it as the therapy zone where there's no surveillance. And again, it seems to be this secret place where they can get special treatment away from everywhere else. Mm. No surveillance. They can have alcohol. But it must only, up until now, have been used by him. Yeah. <laughs> because there's never been an obvious challenger to him as well. Yeah. And he, he pretends to... Well, number two pretends to be unhappy with the village and he gets number six drinking, shows him a a chalkboard on which their pet scientist has apparently been doodling his (laughs) latest creations. But it's all a ruse and whatever number six has been drinking, it's a uh, double brainwashing liquid (laughs) of some description. Yeah, I've been wondering actually whether he is basically starting to come to during this. So it's almost like he's he's under the influence of this drug for a little bit up until now, and then it's starting to wear off, which is why there are moments of lucidity when he's walking with number 58 uh, to this cave. And it seems like he is knowingly pretending to be drunk to her to kind of throw her off. And he th- but he doesn't actually sense that she might be part of some bigger plan. And when he's talking to number two, you know, it's not like he is clearly thinking that number two is faking it. He believes that he is... He's back to his original number six way, which is to uh, pretend to do something, uh, pretending he's under the influence of uh, one of the villagers' plans, but actually he is secretly trying to uh, turn the tables on them. But after what we've seen in A, B and C, where he did get the better of them, what's happened here is that with number two actually pretending to be drunk, he has actually got the better of number six. So, I mean, it really is the tables being turned in this episode in direct response to uh, what happened in the previous episode. And it shows that the village do adapt to number six. 
to try and work out if there are better ways to take him down. But according to the scientist number two, the amount of whatever this drug is that he's been administered through the drink is exactly enough that's going to take him right through the election. Yeah, so they do keep putting things in things he drinks. (laughs) And and that's something he never really learns throughout the series. So it's finally election day, and they have the least secretive secret ballot I've ever seen, which seems to consist of villagers streaming through the hall dropping their rosettes into the box of whoever they want to vote for in full view of everybody else. Mm. Which again is a very prescient thing for what happens in probably most modern elections today. (laughs) But it's a landslide victory for number six. And as number six said earlier, everyone votes for a dictator. And in fact, even the old number two votes for him in the Mm. end and throws one last rosette onto the pile. And number six seems apologetic that this has happened. Yeah, it's again, it goes back to the state that he's been left in by whatever is being done to him. I think one of the themes that happens here is that it's all about suppressing his free will and making him more submissive to the whims of the village. It's strange they don't really use this tactic again because it does seem to work to an extent in terms of making him very subdued. It's just odd, you know, is there another moment in the series where number six apologises to number two? It's a, yeah, it's a weird, it's a weird moment almost to highlight the change in character from everything we've seen before. And the crowd outside are chanting for number two to come out and they seem really ecstatic until they actually emerge and then there's stony silence. Yeah, for all the moments throughout the episode in the previous sort of 35 minutes or so, you've had this insane chanting of six, 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 over and over again. The crowds have been there. There's been almost this frenzy of people around him everywhere he goes. And when he gets in the taxi driven by 58 with number two in the back, it's strange that no one is there mobbing the car. They all actually wait for him to go past and then turn with their backs to him and then all go into just this bizarre haze of just going about their daily business, leading the taxi just to drive off so although they're very excited about him being elected he's simply now now it's been done there's nothing special about it as hard fought as the campaign is the minute it's won it's over there is no celebration afterwards yeah it's like you can you can promise lots of exciting things and people can be excited about it but the moment you're in power you're just another person who failed to actually do any of the things that they were Mm. going to do when they come out, the music that you hear playing is a slightly discordant version of For He's a Jolly Good Fellow. Mm. And I didn't realise this until I read uh, The Fallout Guide by Anne Stevens and Fiona Moore. Um, but I, I think this is a particularly American version of the song, where it's the exact same tune to For He's a Jolly Good Fellow, but the lyrics are, the bear went over the mountain. Apparently this is like a like a kind of scouts song or something. Mm. And it goes... The bear went over the mountain, the bear went over the mountain, the bear went over the mountain to see what he could see. But all that he could see, all that he could see was the other side of the mountain, the other side of the mountain, the other side of the mountain was all that he could see. But you can see how it scans with the the song. And this got me thinking about all, all these mountain references, the reference to number two is Everest with number one at the summit of it at the very beginning, the 
symbol of the all-seeing eye being in a, a, a triangular mountain-shaped thing, that it, in some respects he has now, like the bear, crossed over the mountain and become number two. Mm. But all that he can see is the other side of the mountain. There isn't actually anything different. There's nothing achievable. There's nothing there. It's just the other side of the mountain. And it's again, it's that duality. It's that doubling up, just looking exactly the same. All that he can see is the other side of the mountain. Yeah, and indeed doubling up with the Giza Jobs of the Yeah. <laughs> so 2, 6 and 58 all head on up to the Green Dome where... The old number two just leaves them to it, really. Mm. Doesn't seem to give them any orientation, just sort of leaves them there. And number six and 58, they head on into number two's room and just start pushing buttons and get very excited as chairs come out of the floor and things spin around. And it's, it's like uh, finally being in control of a whizzy computer mm. that you've seen. Other, it's, it's like they're kind of like giddy doing it, really. But when they are pushing all these buttons and seeing how it affects like the chairs going up and down, given that there were no instructions, like you say, it's it's almost suggesting that, you know, once you have power, what do you do with it? Mm. You know, you just have a series of I mean, you, you technically do have the power. You can do all these different things, but it doesn't mean that you do it in a controlled fashion at all. It's, it, you know, literally what you've done is you've handed over the means to do things. But that doesn't necessarily translate into anything if it's all itself an artifice as well because the fact they've given him the chance to you know operate all these buttons it's not like it's doing loads of things in the village or controlling anything i'm i'm pretty certain that given that they've engineered the situation to have him in this role it's not like they're going to leave anything useful for him to actually do <laughs> but to give him all these buttons and things it's literally there to make him think that he is in control just to drive him to the point where he is sufficiently confused that he does believe that he does have the control physically because he has these buttons in front of him, but also because he believes that his plan can now be put into place. I can think of a few world leaders who I would like to have a fake panel of buttons <laughs> put in front of them and just let them play around with those for a while. But he starts switching on the um, security surveillance cameras mm. and you see what appears to be live footage of various locations around the village. Mm. But then you see what seems to be live footage of number six himself, somewhere else, wearing the clothes he was wearing in Arrival, his original civilian clothes. Yeah, so if you're still playing the uh, blazer piping drinking game, you get bonus points for having a drink when there's no piping on his blazer. (laughs) (laughs) Is it a recording or is it another double? It's it's strange. He doesn't seem to react to seeing himself. Mm. But he is is slightly catatonic here anyway. Hmm. You start to hear the weird kind of sound from the truth test again. And all these dots start flying around on the screen and 58 guides him over to stand in front of the screen and watch them. And it's almost like it's deprogramming him. Mm. But then she needs to put in a few slaps at the end in order to get him to wake back up again. Yeah, what do you think about this this tick-tick business? This tick-tick and then slapping him. Yeah. I, I like. Yeah, I can't figure out what the tick-tick is about. I mean, there's a... I don't know what the element of time is meant to be here, but it just makes it very surreal and actually quite shocking to watch. At this point, you're starting to get a sense that there is something more to number 58 
But it's when she kind of takes off his number two rosette that you realise that the power shift was always seemingly between two and six. But now what we see is that a way that the village is playing number six is to make him believe that this is the number two that he's up against. Which arguably, you know, after some time in the village, I don't know how long, he must have thought this is how it works. There's a number two in charge and they report to a number one and that's how the system works. And and now he has a chance to become the number two. Therefore, he can then meet number one or, or work out how to control the situation. What the village is very smart at doing here is to completely subvert what he is most confident of, uh, which undermines him completely. And the fact that they put him through all this, it's it's strange because it's unclear how much he would have done anyway uh, without this level of brainwashing. You know, he's not stupid. He may have actually played along with it in order to win the election. But maybe they needed him to behave that way because that's the only way that they could get the villagers to respond as well Mm. if they're equally under some kind of mind control you would argue that the whole cycle of the electorate and the politician is just deeply entwined Mm. um, and you need to manipulate both of them to get the outcome that the actual people in control of the village actually want so when he does snap out of it and he starts shouting through the comm system to the village that everyone is free to go free to go including the rather implausible statement, obey me and be free. <laughs> uh, it's very Orwellian, that one. Very um, Dalekian as well. It does sound very Dalekian. Everyone just carries on going about their daily lives. It's pretty much the same, I think, when most politicians are elected, which is that everyone just gets up the next morning and does the exact same thing they did the day before. Mm. In terms of the kind of hierarchy of things that are important in your life at any one time, whatever politicians are doing is normally quite low down compared with, I've got a job to do, what am I going to eat tomorrow? I've got to sort all this stuff out. I've got all these far more important, urgent, immediate things that I have to deal with in my life to uh, worry about some new politician who's telling me to do something completely disruptive that is going to disrupt everything that I'm doing. Mm. People don't like to have their lives turned upside down, even when you're shouting at them to start a revolution, I suppose. Yeah, and the promise that he's giving people of freedom is is an illusion. Is it perhaps more of an illusion to him than it is to the villagers? Mm. Maybe he truly believes that it is a place that you can be free from, whereas the people in the village have come to accept that it is the prison they exist in. Well, He's assuming that everybody else wants what he wants. He wants to get out of there. But he's also presuming that at least some people believe that they want freedom as well. I suppose, is that is that the error that he believes that those who vote for him want the same things that he wants? Whereas in reality, it's, it's a lot more complicated. Even after everything that's happened, he has no real power. He can't actually get any of them to do anything. As, as number two warned earlier, he doesn't have the experience to manipulate a community like that. Mm. You know, if you put a lot of thought into it, you could probably conduct some kind of experiment that would convince everyone in the village that they really wanted to leave and that they really were all free to go and that they could all run away. But just shouting it at them over the tannoy isn't going to do anything. You know, do do they even believe that he is allowed to say this? Yeah, and the fact that he says, you know, obey me and you can be free is it shows that he is almost also got like a warped perspective on what power in the village actually is. Mm. 
because power is not the property of an individual in the village. It's the ability to coerce members of that community to do your bidding for you. And he still thinks that he's in an environment which has rules. And they have sold him on the idea of what democracy is in the village. But the term democracy means two very different things from where number six is coming from and where the village is coming from. And I think that's fundamentally what this episode might actually be about. It's these terms are used interchangeably for the wrong reasons sometimes. You know, that a, that a dictator might have the capacity to explain to the people they're ruling over that what they're in is a democracy. And if those people choose to believe it or are coerced into believing it, uh, that's a very dangerous situation. And yet he and yet number six is trying to engender a revolution. But ultimately, he becomes exactly the kind of character who he was fighting against at the beginning. Yeah. I mean, if he's encouraging people to storm the Bastille... We all know what happened in the years that <laughs> followed uh, the storming of the Bastille by yeah. the French Revolution, and it was not pretty. Yeah. So, punch-up number two of the episode. <laughs> Boiler-suited lackeys come rising up out of the ground and chase him off so that he, he stops telling everyone to run away. And weirdly, as he runs out of the room, he goes straight into the cave, which makes no geographic sense whatsoever. There isn't a cave back there. No. But, but apparently there is a cave back there and it's a cave in which there's a bunch of dudes in glasses staring at Rover. Yeah, it's very weird. Again, Rover has this weird luminous green glow as well, similar to the the colour scheme seen from Rover's point of view on number six when he was in the water. It's all very, very weird. And they're just sitting on chairs, just staring at it and they kind of turn around to say, what are you looking at? <laughs> and they have a punch up and number six gets... A bit of a kicking, really. <laughs> and if you watch it now, it seems quite tame compared to most of the stuff that you see on TV, prime time. But at the time that it was aired in the UK, it was on ITV, so there were different ITV uh, regions that were around the country. And some of those regional broadcasters cut some of this fight scene out because they thought that it was too brutal and it wasn't until the 80s when it aired on channel 4 that the fight scene in its entirety was screened in every part of the country and because channel 4 broadcast did the same thing everywhere but yeah in the 60s even a fight like that <laughs> some some regional broadcasters thought oh no this is a bit strong can't you can't have someone being punched that many times <laughs> Uh, a simpler time. <laughs> so Six is taken by two of these village goons, village thugs, back up into the main room where Number Two uh, usually resides. And as they hold him up, he looks and he sees uh, Number 58 in front of him. And she's now got the Number Two rosette on. And she's wearing uh, like a village Number Two scarf there's no maid's cap on anymore for the first time she no longer speaks this bizarre made-up language she's speaking in english so it's clear that there was something going on all the time with number 58 yeah she's so good in this it's such a complete 180 turnaround mm. in an instant from from the maid to you know the, the point where she, her personality starts to turn as she's slapping mm. him and then now in this bit where she says to him will you never learn this is only the beginning mm. are you ready to talk 
I, I think she's absolutely brilliant in this. I, I wish we could have had her as like a number two for a whole episode. Hmm. I think she would have been great. But do you think, in fact, she was the number two the whole time? Because is part of the ruse the fact that the Eric Portman number two, is he actually the number two, do you think? Or is he part of this game and he's actually working for the number two who is 58? So, so I can't even remember exactly what happened, but there's that scene where number two is on the phone during the truth test. Yeah. And he is getting some information from somebody who's telling him not to damage number six. Oh, now, at yeah. that point, is he actually on the phone to number 58? Because uh, so she's it, not there, is she? No. So is, is number six actually thinking the whole time that Eric Portman is number two? Whereas in reality, the village has slipped in number 58 to be number two who has now become his closest companion (laughs) and the fact that she pretends not to speak English means that he's probably also of the belief that she is just somebody who has been brought here she's been introduced as a as a mere number 58 he has no opinion of her at all thinking that she's important she's never going to say anything which might reveal to him what her true status is and she's just playing along just to observe him at close range yeah so Number six gets taken home on a stretcher. The old number two, if he indeed he ever was number two, leaves in the helicopter. And the new number two says, give my regards to the homeland. Mm-hmm. Whatever that might mean. <laughs> I just love the ambiguity of it. It's just, again, it makes you think, but it doesn't tell you at all, you know, which side the village is on or if there are sides in the inverted commas traditional context here. But yeah, we have this situation where I think this is probably the first episode where there are essentially three number twos. You have you have original number two, we have number 58, who turns out to be number two, and for a brief period after he wins the election, number six is number two as well. <laughs> so yeah, we have uh, three number twos, and I think a startling one in Rachel Herbert as number two, like you were saying. I mean, she's just fantastic in this episode. Again, there are so many things running through this 50-minute episode. It covers more stuff in that time than many shows do because it's not just a satire on politics. It's actually quite a serious meditation on the nature of the political system, on democracy, on the utilisation of political ideologies to kind of drive the masses to do things. There are some quite barbed comments, even though this was in the late 60s, on the reliability and the quality of the reporting of the media. All these things, I mean, they all are still relevant themes today. As a treatise on the nature of power, it's remarkable how they've gone from having a situation where number two is the power in the village to basically showing number six that he can become number two as well. But it doesn't mean anything. It's, you know, it's the system which is behind everything. It's not a particular figurehead and indeed then it becomes more logical that they churn through number twos the number two is there just to serve a purpose there are means to an end here they don't actually have the real authority and even you know that's directly shown in episodes where the number two is always on the phone to somebody who's giving him or her an instruction and indeed often castigating them for their failure to get number six to do what they want or indeed reveal why he resigned. Don't worry. All will be satisfactory in the end. Give my regards to the homeland. So I think we can chalk that one up to a win for the village. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening to that epic run through Free for All. 
We've still got lots more to come, so stick with us. <laughs> Coming up in just a second, we've got our interview with Alan Stevens, co-author of Fallout, All About the Prisoner, and we talked to him about Free For All and also about the book and how it was put together and his thoughts on the prisoner in general and then coming up after that we've got our news roundup from rick davy so stay tuned so first up bex had a chat with alan and these are his thoughts on the prisoner and specifically the episode free for all information information so we're delighted to be joined this time by Alan Stevens, who is co-author of Fallout, the unofficial and unauthorised guide to the prisoner, together with Fiona Moore. Hi, Alan. Hi. Thank you for joining us. Pleasure. So we've just been talking about the episode Free For All, and it seems like a very prescient time to be looking at this particular episode, an episode about politics, about media manipulation about brainwashing it's there's an awful lot to talk about in this episode i mean the the political side of it is probably the most obvious aspect when you first watched the episode how did it strike you when i first watched the episode yes uh, i first watched the episode in 1983 channel four uh, were doing a repeat of um i think they were showing for the first time but it was a repeat of the prisoner and I hadn't seen the show uh, at all before then. I'd seen, heard bits about it and, and, and seen, might even seen a couple of clips, but it was a complete mystery to me, this show was. And uh, I was, how old was I then? I was possibly 1983. I think I was 17 then. So um, I uh, watched the show. I thought the best way to watch the show was to get drunk because it kind of made more sense that way. <laughs> um, and I also tape recorded it as well. Uh, I didn't have a video recorder back then, so I would uh, listen to the episode, I'd watch it, and then I'd listen to it. And uh, because I, I'd, I'd, I'd listened to it almost after, directly after I'd watched it, the, the images were more cemented in my mind. So uh, I free-for-all, I always liked free-for-all, but it was possibly one of the most uh, um, impenetrable uh, and confusing episodes they did. I remember watching. I remember bringing a friend around once, and uh, we were watching various programs. And I put it on, and he he watched it. And at the end of it, he said, "What the hell have I just seen?" He said. <laughs> so you know, I'm 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 wouldn't be surprised if a lot of people watch it and get the same, you know, um, same impression as I did when I was seventeen and drunk. <laughs> We've spoken quite a lot about how the prisoner remains very socially relevant, no matter what decade you seem to be watching it in. Um, obviously filmed in the late 60s, it was made in an era where there was so probably for the first time quite a lot of political satire going on on television. What was your take on it in the political climate of the early 80s? Um, I can't really say that I was um, uh, a politically minded 17-year-old. I wasn't uh, uh, really had any interest or particular knowledge about um, politics. My mother and father voted Conservative, and uh, the first time I got to vote, I voted Conservative. Um, I certainly wouldn't do that now. <laughs> so you can see a kind of certain naivete there. Um, I, I think that The Prisoner as a whole is a series which uh, doesn't have any flags in it. It's not effectively trying to give you a specific message. You could say that it is an 
an analogy or whatever of um, society. But we don't really know what society is either, do we? Mm -hmm. So a lot of politicians and uh, punsters and media, they, they pick out narratives or which they, they may just see narratives and they connect these things together and present it, present it to us as um, as reality. Though, you know, uh, depending on which country it is, it all depends on which narrative they're following and or how they interpret a particular narrative. And The Prisoner is a lot like that. You can... Um, I, I watched this episode, Free For All, on the day uh, Trump was elected. And... Um, <laughs> Yes, you could see uh, parallels there, but I'm quite sure that uh, if Hillary had won, then I would see parallels also. Mm. Uh, it's it's um, the prisoner itself, and also, I mean, this story was of course um, directed by, and also written under pseudonym by Patrick McGowan. Um, but it, it, it's it's a mystery. Uh, a secret is something uh, with one answer, and a mystery is something with a number of possible answers. And that's what the prisoner and uh, free for all are. I feel. Every time I rewatch the episode, one of the things that strikes me all over again is how surreal and dreamlike quite a lot of it is. It it seems like uh, you know after the episode, I I think a lot about the the political satire aspect of it. But then when you you go back and watch it again, some of the images, some of the um, the way that the uh, geography of the village seems to move around in ways that don't make any sense. It, it leaves you slightly baffled about what you've seen, but also slightly baffled about what is really happening in the episode. Yes, there's a dream logic at work in it. There's a dream logic in a lot of the episodes, but some episodes are more straightforward. Hammer and Dramville is quite a straightforward episode, whereas uh, this one uh, sort of exploits the the, the, the the surrealness of the prisoner um, to the... Uh, <laughs> Uh, to the extreme. So you've got um, you know, a, a piece of uh, a statue playing the drums, and you've got uh, uh, changes in uh, geography, and it, it, it is, uh, you know, it is a disorientating uh, story. Um, how does that interact with the political satire? I mean, I, I really don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It, it just, it's. Um, it's like I, I, I can't I, I couldn't say well the reason why they are that you know that the, there's the prisoner appears to appear in the story at least twice you know he he's watching himself in real time on a screen mm. uh, when he becomes um, number two um, which means there must be more than more than one one of him there um, I, I I don't know I think I think there's a I, I think the surreal elements um, are to the fore, but they are a part of the the theme of the series. Um, how they quite interact with the politics, but then again, I suppose you could argue that again we are being presented with you know um, I am the prisoner and I will become number two when I I, I take charge. All this will happen, and um, you know and there's there's a diff there's a sort of um, a, a sparring of, of narrative and uh, between the two number two is elected and and yet effectively they're attempting to impose. Um, their version of reality on on what is actually um, surreal chaos. Mm. <laughs> hey, can hey, can you do that really? You know, um, it's you know, hey, hey, if you became number two or prime minister or king or emperor of a village, you know, how would how would that affect 
how would that affect something which you know is 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 really how can you imp- i suppose you, i suppose you could do it militarily impose your will on the prisoners society i don't know it it it's it's a how do, how do you impose your will onto something which you don't understand hmm. and can't predict i mean it's um I, I i can't answer the question after all these years i'm writing a book on it i can't answer that question really so towards the end when he um sort of gets back um control of his his senses and attempts to announce to the people of the village that they can leave you're um, free to go yeah and everyone just ignores him yes there's there's a question mark over whether everyone around him is actually uh, a warden if you like and it was and they're all in on it or whether they really are um, village prisoners who are now so conditioned to not wanting to leave that they um, that they ignore it or it, it could be that he is simply assuming that everybody wants the same thing that he does and then is slightly confounded when it turns out that they don't want the thing that he wants which is to be free but but what is freedom? I mean, mm. the, the village is a seductive place. You know, you can you, old age pensioners can go and relive their childhood, and uh, as you know, the prisoner another episode demonstrates he has an exercise routine and he goes for every day and a, a particular thing he does and sweets he buys. So you know, <clears throat> although he's opposing the village, um, member six is still part of it and still um, uses their currency. And as, as you know, there's there's a lot of crossover there. Um, the thing is that. What does it mean when they don't they don't run away? Where can they run away to? They're they're on a they're on an island, aren't they? Mm. And then there's these mountains. How do you cross those mountains? I think you know you could be anything. It could be a case of where they're complacent. It could be a case of where they just didn't believe he had the power to do it, but they really know that he isn't he isn't the guy in charge. Number two is not number number two cannot be in charge <laughs> if because it implies there is a number one, doesn't it? Yeah. So you know um, it could be a whole series of reasons. It, uh, you know, he doesn't really have any power there. He isn't even number two at the end. The election is a, is, is a fake. I mean, there's a whole series of number twos we see, and there was never any indication that they were brought in um, through elections. There's election every year, according to Free For All. The, the reality of the episodes change. The situation is different each episode you see. It's like when you see the title sequence, uh, he resigns, he uh, drives off to his home, he starts packing a suitcase. He is gassed. He wakes up in the village. I think that might uh, that could be that that could be interpreted as more than just a scene setter for the audience. It could be that that happens at the beginning of every episode. That every episode uh, he either is taking the village, or he is, you know, he is dying, and effectively each episode is 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 a rival. Mm. I mean, there is some bizarre. You can never really work out in how long he's been in the village. There's a lot of contradictory evidence concerning this, mm. and uh, where the village is located, and um, you know who who is behind uh, who is behind the village. There is continual, you know, implications. It might be their own side. It might be the Russians. It might be some other power. We we don't know. So, you know, I, I think um, ultimately he takes charge or he believes he takes charge but he isn't in charge he doesn't know what the village is and the people who voted for him 
uh, seem to lose all enthusiasm <laughs> once he wins. <laughs> yeah, it's the sense that people are always optimistic about you know, a, a new politician until they actually have, well, the, the appearance of any power, in which case they're just another politician and they don't really like them anyway. Well, they're... In Britain, for example, we for a long time we had uh, both parties, were all three parties really, the Liberal Democrats or main parties, uh, the Conservative Party and Labour Party were pr pretty much interchangeable. Um, and I think you get to a point where you think, well, what is the point of voting for these people? Because there's not much difference between uh, the, the, the party in power and the party who are, you know, are striving for power. They're basically going to be doing similar sort of things. Um, I think that's changed recently in Britain much to the establishment's horror. Uh, in America, again, I would have voted for Jill Steen. Was it Stein? I can't remember now. <laughs> or um, Bernie Sanders. I certainly wouldn't have voted for Hillary Clinton and the Democrats. And uh, my goodness, the Republicans are insane. Uh, but they're very similar as well, aren't they? They're, they're, someone was saying to me recently that the CIA probably ran America and the, the parties know that. And... Uh, the reason why Trump isn't so popular is because he's doing all the wrong things, not because he's some sort of free-thinking anarchist, but simply because he's uh, incompetent. But then again, you know, perhaps that's a good thing. You know, <laughs> if he doesn't know what he's doing, then, you know. Um, so, I don't know. Another question I can't answer, really. It's a difficult program, The Prisoner. There's, it, there's one episode, Do Not Forsake Me or My Darling, mm. and that was a very... McGowan had gone off at that point. Uh, to get some raise of money for the prisoner uh, doing a film called uh, Ice Station Zebra. And um, he came back and wasn't very happy with what they'd done. And effectively, it was a bit of a traditional ITC sort of spy drama thing. And uh, you can see the flaws in that story. And in our book, we point them out uh, ruthlessly. Um, but that isn't always the case with the prisoner. Because the prisoner is so surreal, then even errors can become part of that. You know, it, it are absorbed into the, the weirdness of the show. So there's a few episodes which feature clips of uh, Patrick McGowan. You know, there's a, there's a shot, establishing shot of a village. And actually, just in the back end, you can see uh, a prisoner walking along or, or standing on a, a, a balcony. Or And, you know, obviously the reason they've used that shot very quickly is because this is an establishing shot. The fact that McGowan's there, they wouldn't notice it. But of course, with DVD, mm. you do. But having said that, it's already been established that there may be more than one version of a prisoner of, of number six in the village anyway. So it, it all kind of fits into that. I remember David Howe saying he was the, he, he was he edited the book and um, is, uh, what a, a publisher of Telos, you know, he's the owner of Telos with Stephen James Walker. And he said, uh, I'm not sure whether the prisoner is, uh, you know, a work of genius or whether it is, um, you know, their, their continuity editor needs shooting. <laughs> it could be both. It doesn't really matter, does it? <laughs> no, and it's when you come to the question of um, is there an, are there at least two of him because he appears to be seeing himself on on live television. If this does place in the order, the episode order just before uh, the schizoid man, uh, which is going to be coming next, where there are very specifically two of them, or there is a, a some kind of copy or somebody who's made to look like him um in the village and, and taking up life in the village is it you you could see it as a, a... what you're saying is it could be a, a, a precursor for that episode uh, yeah. i don't think so the reason i don't think so is um it's actually the way around the, the prisoner is 
um, it was a surprise to the prisoner to find someone who was pretending to be the prisoner. Mm. And so for him to have seen on the screen himself would have, he thought, hang on, what am I doing there? But he doesn't. He sees himself on the screen and he seen, kind of accepts that he's on the screen. Mm. And indeed, he's dressed in the same clothes as he wore in Arrival, which, of course, in Arrival, we are told his clothes are burned, mm. as later proved not to be the case. But so he, he appears to be, what we see on the screen is like his first day. Why wouldn't he react? See, it, 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 again, you have a dream and strange stuff happens in dreams. And sometimes you, you have a lucid dream and you start questioning it and thinking, hang on, how come it, how come it I can fly? <laughs> Why doesn't gravity work anymore? And, and, or sometimes you don't question it and, and weird stuff happens. So if he switches on a monitor and sees himself in real time, either he always knew that he is there, you know, he's kind of observing himself, like he's kind of, it's taking place inside his head. Mm. Um, or he didn't notice it because he was, he was too preoccupied with pressing all the switches and, <laughs> and, and telling everybody to, 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 to escape. Um, I don't know. It's just, it, you cannot, you cannot, if you were writing a straightforward adventure story and you put that in and didn't explain it, um, it would just, you know, it would be sticking like a sore thumb, but within the prisoner, it, there is a, there is a kind of sense, if you sort of mean, beyond, beyond the linear, beyond the, he, he does, he does appear again in the schizoid man, um, this time played by, uh, you know, a, a guy called, uh, Curtis. He, um, Images of them appear. I mean, there's this board they have, don't they, with the numbers on, you know, number six and numbers. And and if you look at the numbers, they're all higgledy-piggledy. And again, it's a case of where you have a DVD player. They didn't have a DVD player back in 1967. But I think on there, there's like a, a 6B or something. You think, well, so, so I think this is the only episode that actually has subdivisions. So you have, earlier on, you have um, two characters, 100 and... I can't remember the numbers now. What were they? They were 113B, I think, is the photographer. Yeah, 130, 113, 113B. And those people are exactly the same. They're like clones. Hmm. And you also have, um, you know, the, the prisoner appears to have, a, a you know, a, 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 a subsect of himself as well. So again, you know, <laughs> perhaps he saw that and thought, oh, there might be a subsect of me here. And then that's what, I don't know. You know, you can come up with a whole series of explanations as to why he saw himself on the screen. But I don't think you could say that there is a direct link between those two episodes i think that you could put the episodes in any order really um and they would make a similar sort of sense um i think a friend of mine did uh said he was watching it with his his, his wife in in a different order and i said well so you start with arrival he said no no i'm, I'm putting arrival you know I'm, I'm just picking them up and they go in. So Arrival might be episode six or episode seven. <laughs> and I, I think probably that's possible, though, because if the prisoner is continually arriving in the village, then you can have a arrival as episode <laughs> nine. Um, I think you might have a bit of trouble with the, the, the final two-parter because there's a direct link between those two episodes. But then again, there wasn't originally. Originally, um, Once Upon a Time was meant to be the end, the last episode of the first series. And then when um, Michael Grade said, you know, um, I'm... <laughs> You're not going to end this show. Uh, Magoo and then went back and said, "Well, we've still got this episode, which is kind of hanging around, and I'll write a, you know, a follow, a part two to that." So that's how that came about. So it was. I mean, Patrick Magoon has said that there are seven episodes. You could throw the rest away, and there are seven episodes which tell the story. I'm not entirely sure if that's 
answer. I'm not. He's never really specified which do, which of those seven are. And um, I, 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 I think each episode tells a story. And I think uh, it, you, you, I think there are certainly important episodes. Um, the last episode is important. Um, Once upon a time is important. Um, a, B, and C. I mean, great episode, but is it important? I don't know. I mean, it's a fantastic episode. Um, but free for all, being it's written and directed by Patrick McGowan, probably in Patrick McGowan's mind would have been one of the seven. There are a number of confusing things about how this episode fits in with the chronology, particularly when number two describes number six as a, a sort of new face and that people don't necessarily might not know him yet in the village. Um, but as you say, if if you take it as him arriving at the village and you every time the credits roll then that doesn't really matter no well when they did the prisoner they they this, this is a common thing uh, episode one was written and then they approached a number of writers and uh, they sent them episode one as you know the template for the the series and so everyone wrote their episodes not everyone but four three or four of the, the writers wrote their episodes as as episode two. So you've got a kind of four episodes. I think Bounce of the Dead was one of them. Trans Big Ben was another one. Um, Checkmate was the third one. I can't remember what the fourth one was. The fourth one was, I can't remember. It's a while ago since I read the book. A while ago since I read the book. It's certainly a long time since I rewrote it, Fiona and I. But uh, it could be that Free For All was um, one of those stories again. It might be down to bad continuity. Um, but more likely, uh, Mark Stein didn't think it was important. It mm. added to the general uh, weirdness of of the series. Um, you know, uh, there was there was a there's a lot of films around that time, um, like um, Casino Royale, <laughs> mm. Casino Royale, the original one, which has got about you know about four or five James Bond. I think everyone becomes 007 in that film, and it all ends with <laughs> an uh, explosion and all this stuff. And and I, I think there was probably because lots of people were doing LSD and there was a kind of sixes, let it all hang out sort of vibe and um, an attempt to uh, get away from the quite stifling and authoritarian 50s. There was a, there was this explosion of, of creativity and um, also sort of looked towards um, Eastern cultures. And so I think that The Prisoner, on one level, is a product of that and so really couldn't be created uh, at any other point. Um, but equally, because of its unfathomable nature, uh, that gives it a a life beyond the the, the time it was made. It, 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 it's also made in colour, which is a great help. Mm-hmm. If you ever watched any of the episodes of Danger Man, um, you'll see that very well-crafted episodes, very well-written, uh, very well-acted, very well cast uh, some extraordinarily good scripts and yet the show is never repeated because only they, I think there's only two episodes that remain in colour it's a great shame really um, because I mean it, black and white can be beautiful I think you know it's a, it's a beautifully made black and white show but due to prejudice uh, it, it very rarely gets shown a Prisoner of course was made in colour um, and so immediately you know people they think because there's this idea that oh well people will be put off with black and white but if it's in colour, then it'll get shown, which is, 
which is uh, great. So there's a surrealness of it. There's a fact that it was made in colour. The fact it was made on 35mm film, which means you can release um, uh, it on various new formats. Can't You can release it on Blu-ray and all that stuff. So, um, it, But it's interesting. Why, why the show caught on? I mean, there are probably a whole series of surreal shows out there. Um, but why did this one particularly uh, strike a chord? Um, I think this is only my opinion, I'm probably wrong. It's probably because when it came out, it was so controversial. And people watched this and thought, well, I'm not really sure what's happening, but I'm sure at the end it will all be explained. And and finally, when, when the show was over, they looked at his collection of 17 episodes and spent you know the next, <laughs> the next 50 years trying to work out how they fit together, what order they go in, uh, what are the main themes of the show, what was Patrick McGowan trying to do, um, what was it about? Uh, what does it tell us? And um, that creates dialogue and arguments. And um, dialogue and arguments are usually what keep programs alive, I think. <laughs> you know, if you know what it was all about, then you think, oh, that was an interesting mystery book. Close book. Let's find another mystery book. You don't think, oh, I'll go back and read it again. You, mm. you, but if you, if you read, if, you read, if the last page of the, the book is missing, <laughs> you think, well, what was that? You know, you might go back again. You might read it again saying, well, if I can work out, you know, if it was a butler who did it, because I don't know who did it, you know, and that, that creates something which you then, it, it, it becomes part of yourself. You are, you are invested in it. You know, you come up with a theory. It isn't just a case of where you're sitting there as a, you know, a, as a passive uh, member of the audience being told what to think. You're actually going in there and, 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 and trying to work out how it works and make up your own theory, which may be completely different to someone else's theory, but that's good, you know, because that creates dialogue and thought and, you know, an investigation. I mean, you know, perhaps, I mean, I've always been interested in, you know, working out what something is about. And, but I, I, when did I become interested in that? Um, it might have been The Prisoner. It might have been when I was watching it when I was 17 and drinking those beers and thinking, I'm sure, you know, I'm sure after I've drunk another beer, it will all make sense to me. <laughs> and, um, and, and I'm still thinking that now, though drinking less beer probably. <laughs> Do you think it's helped that McGowan was so reluctant to talk much about it, or particularly talk about what his thoughts were behind making it, that's sort of kept that mystery going? Yeah, I think that's right. I think authors make a huge mistake in coming out and saying and explaining it to people. You know, I, you know, sometimes you can explain minor bits. You can say, "Oh well, you know, I meant this," or it. It means this, but if you if you try and give some sort of Patrick McGowan going away and writing a book like Fallout <laughs> about about the prisoner would be a fatal mistake because that would have meant that people would have said, oh well, it means that, and and they would have just stopped thinking and stopped thinking of that show, and you know it would have it would have probably killed it. I can do a book like that because I didn't create the series, I didn't write the series, I didn't direct for it. I can Fiona and I can write a book about the prisoner. And put air, you know, match things up, and 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 and, and you know, tell it, tell, tell people what we think is happening. But it, it can never be the definitive book on the prisoner because, because, um, well, I don't think you can pin a show down like that. But equally, you know, um, I don't think Patrick McGowan, to be honest, could write a book like that. I think, I think there was, as a writer myself, you, I, I remember writing a stage play. And uh, the director came up and said, what does this mean? 
And I thought, I have no idea what that means at all. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, well, I said, put it in anyway, because it kind of sounds cool. Anyway, when I was watching the play, I said, oh, I know what that means there. And I had to basically mentally go back to when I was writing it and, and the, the process of writing it, because, you know, you, you, a lot of unconscious thought goes into it. And um, and I think with The Prisoner, uh, there was a lot of unconscious thought going into uh, the show, part of the zeitgeist of the time, part of, uh, of who Patrick McGowan was, various productions he'd done in the past. There's elements of um, Danger Man and various other stuff in there. And, and I think that, you know, it, it, it spurged itself out onto the... They, they directed it and uh, it, it appeared on our TV screens. And um, I think that... I think that it, 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 it's, 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 it's something magical about it. There's something elusive about the show. So I think even McGowan would think, you know, I think he'd say. I know he was never keen on talking about it. And that could be partly because he, he, did, he didn't know what to say about it. But I think also it might have been, you know, you don't want to, even if he says something it's wrong, you know, people often say, oh, well, but McGowan said it. I don't, know, I don't care, he's wrong. Yeah, but McGowan said it. You know, Wolfers can be wrong about their own work. Mm. I frequently am. People often say to me, this, this and this was about that, wasn't it? And I think, that's what it was. Yeah, you're right. It was about that. Or I watched something on TV, um, which I've seen, you know, saw 20 years ago, and I watched something, oh, I, I nicked that. I didn't realize that. So we're, you know, there is nothing is, um, there's no such thing as um, an original idea, I don't think. But it's kind of the way you put those those elements together that gives it its um, originality, if that makes sense. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yes, no, that, that does make sense, yes. <laughs> Explain it to me then, because I didn't follow it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think also with The Prisoner, there's, a number of almost happy accidents that happened on the way, like the the way that Rover was developed, um, or, or almost as a, a sort of afterthought when the the previous versions of Rover that they had planned couldn't work, and they see a, a weather balloon and think, oh, let's use that. And now it is such an iconic part of the show, and it's it's so mystifying. It's exactly what Rover is, and that that mystery of what it is and what it does makes it a lot more frightening than something that is explained but the the the, i think the the ability to just sort of take these happy accidents on board and run with them that you wouldn't necessarily be able to do in a show where you've got the script and you're going to follow everything exactly and it's all um you know planned down to the very minute of what you're going to be shooting exactly when and how and where you can't embrace those kind of things i don't think shows work that way i don't think programs are uh, nailed down absolutely so you know uh, to, to the minute i i think that programs all programs are organic um sometimes i mean sometimes changes are forced on a, a series especially tv shows are forced on a series because an actor has died or has uh, decided they don't want to do this show anymore um sometimes he, you know the, the, the director <laughs> Or writer doesn't entirely. I mean, it, it, you have a situation where you have to bang out, like for example, with Blake Seven, um, they were they would have to produce uh, 13 scripts over a, a certain period of time uh, within a certain budget, and some scripts would fall through, and a late replacement would come in, or some actor um, would no longer do the show, and so there, there is always, no matter what the show is, there is always a kind of um, organic element um, to it. 
I suppose if you had a book and you used that book as um, you know the basis of your your 13 parts or whatever, then I suppose it, it's slightly more um, nailed down. But even then, there's you know I think with Game of Thrones, there's there's some substantial changes and character differences between the books and the TV show. So I think that that element there, yeah, I mean, the prisoner um, absorbed. Um, they had this thing, which was I can understand what it means. It had a, it had a, a. I've seen this happen. You know, you're you're walking along the street, and then a a police car or an ambulance uh, zooms past, and traffic stops, and sometimes people um, stop. You know, you, I could see where they had this idea. So the 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 rover would turn up, and they would have this flashing blue light, and uh, people would freeze. Mm. And so you know, you can see where that comes from. And then they says, oh well, the thing won't work. And the engine is so loud it drains out all the dialogue, and it's you know it's um it won't go across these cobbles, so how can we get something which uh, won't have all these problems you know and um, someone the story there is isn't it as to who discovered who thought this was a great idea, but they came up with a weather balloon, and of course you know I mean as long as you've got a lot of them because they do have a tendency to pop, um, <laughs> that's great you know you <laughs> you can. You can pull it along on a piece of string, and it looks fantastic. Uh, and it, it, it. There was this idea, wasn't there, about um, the prisoner being. It, it was a, some of the early. They didn't appear on the screen, but some of the early time. There's an early print of a Chinese big band, isn't there, and also of Arrival, which uh, people might have seen. And um, there's a different kind of, well, a different theme tune. But it's also at the end, as the wheel comes out and uh, it forms into the world, and then the world word pop appears on it and so mm. again the idea that rover is round <laughs> and blank i mean completely white mm. so you know it's like you're projecting onto it what is this thing what is it smothers people but is it alive i mean you know is it, is it does it watch tv does what what does it <laughs> what does it do where does it come from it comes from a, a kind of bubble of water that appears and sometimes there's mini rovers going around and and so it it, it, it kind of it, it it had a personality in a way, uh, but also because it was so blank, because it was so white. Again, there was this kind of white, but like a you know an author gets the first thing they do they have to write an article and they get it a used to get it well now it's on a computer screen but you used to get a blank sheet of paper and you think what am I going to write on that well, you know and you, and you project your ideas onto it and I think that's kind of what Rover is um, it's it's white circles you project your ideas onto what is it you know i again i can't answer that question but yeah i mean it's it's a brilliant piece of iconography it's a fantastic piece of um you know of, of weird serendipitous technology uh, which fits the, the 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 village perfectly because it, it appears that the village that the prisoner is actually set in the late 1960s um and yet the technology we see, especially Rover, is is way beyond anything we have in in uh, 2018. And and you know I can't I cannot think how we could possibly build a Rover. <laughs> you know I, mean, I don't mean the original thing, which consisted of a diesel engine and some and a flashing blue light. I mean this great white thing. You know I mean mm. obviously going out and buying a balloon, <laughs> intelligent thing that you could summon up and that would come along and. You know, knock you off your boat and drag you on onto the. It was just a. It's a piece of magic, really, isn't it? It's 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 so, it's so, high tech. 
you know, it is beyond their comprehension. Yeah, that's a strange sequence when number six grabs the speedboat and, and attempts to make a getaway um, with Rover coming after him in the end. It, is that Was there some kind of need for ITC shows like that to have a bit of an action sequence at, at some point in them? Yeah, if you watch... Um... Yeah, when you watch Danger Man, there is always uh, a spectacular fight. Sometimes there's two spectacular fights, but there's always at least one. And uh, Magoon was a very physical actor. He was a uh, he he really threw himself into it. There are some fights you see on Danger Man. And you think, oh my God, that was a <laughs> that must have hurt the stuntman <laughs> throwing people over balconies and uh, yeah, it, it's uh, incredible stunt work. And uh, this also, you know, a lot of people who cross over from. Um, Danger Man went on to the prisoner, and uh, I think there was built into the kind of ITC format that you know there has to be a speedboat chase or a significant punch-up or uh, uh, you know one of these action elements. So I think I think you know it, it, it's it's there because it's part of the format. It's there. You know, number six will will get will have a fight. As to why he he gets on the boat and and and, and flies off, I don't know. I mean, he's the idea is he goes up for election and then they say, well, we kind of need to mentally control him. So why they need to mentally control him? Again, I, I I don't know, because if it's all a fraud in the first place, it doesn't matter what he says or does. If all the people he is seeing are effectively just, um, uh, it would for this episode, um, you know, uh, wardens or, or puppets, um, what does it matter what, what he says or does? You know, what does it... It, it, the, the central mystery of the episode is why are they going through this process? You can understand from from the prisoner's perspective, he kind of thinks, well, if I become number two, then I might find out who number one is, and equally, I will have certain controls. Uh, I might be lower to, you know, I, I will have access to power. So I can understand his point of view, and and on the surface, um, the argument being put forward by the real number two is to say. Uh, you know, this is a democracy, and uh, you know your, your rebellion against this society is is ridiculous, and you you should become part of us. You know, and and we have a lot to offer, and indeed, you know, you could become number two. So on the surface, the arguments make perfect sense, but if you drill down underneath the surface, um, it doesn't make any sense. If it's a fiction, if he has no power, why mentally condition him? Uh, why offer him this in the first place? Effectively, it, 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 it is against. If you're saying, if, if the argument is, we are proving to you that we are not a dictatorship, um, then surely at the end proves that they are a dictatorship, <laughs> a, 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 a you know incredibly oppressive uh, totalitarian setup where uh, elections are fake, that politicians have uh, no power at all, that there is a uh, another power unseen uh, behind the scenes uh, which control everything and which regard you as their puppet. You could say, well, perhaps it's part of some longer-term strategy to find out why he resigned. But I don't think that the question of why he resigned doesn't even come up in this episode. <laughs> no, it so, doesn't. No. So uh, I have no idea why the village decided to do this. I can see why the prisoner went along with it. He gets on. He gets on a motorboat and, 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 and zooms off. Is attacked by Rover and brought back. It could be a case of where um, his conditioning started to break down, 
and he suddenly his 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 instinct is to flee, isn't it? His instinct is to go, and so you know as he's he's, he's going through this, I'm a mechanical politician, spouting platitudes, and suddenly he thinks, what's going on here? I need to go, and he just woof, and off he goes. You know, knocks some guy flying, gets on the motorbike, zooms off. Do you mean? And then Rover brings him back, and somehow. Again, sort of conditions him, so he's you know he's back to his his political platitudes again. So you know, I mean, if if, if the basis of 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 a Magoon character of, of well, I should say that because in the, the first episode of Arrival, the birthdays and all that stuff is actually Magoons, isn't it? So yeah. he's quite close to the character he plays. So you know, but if 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 there is he, he wants to be free, whatever that means, you know, because he is a product of society, even if he's outside the village. If he wants to be free, then you know that was a kind of, you know, an expression of it. Perhaps that was his absolute core to escape. He escapes. He's part of the structure of, of the um, the, 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 what, what did he work for? The spy, you know, the sort of British intelligence. He's part of that, and then he he is sick of it and and wants to flee to some lovely sunny holiday resort, and then he's captured again and taken to the village, which is a kind of sunny holiday resort, <laughs> just not the one he wanted to go to. And then he tries to flee, you know, I'll go to the moon, I'll go, you know, over the mountains, I'll, I'll get away from this place. But where he is fleeing to, um, I don't know, I don't mean, there is a, <laughs> here's a place. If he lives, if actually the, the entire series takes place inside the mind of a guy who is dying, then he can't flee, can he? He can't. He can't flee himself. He is a product of society. He, there's nowhere to go. Thanks so much for joining us to talk about Free For All. It's been fascinating to get your, your thoughts on it and on the series in general. Oh, thank you. The book Fallout, um, it's been through several print runs now. It's, it's still available, isn't it? Oh, yes. It's been available since 2007. Um, yeah, I, there was a new series then, wasn't there, of, of The Prisoner, which I watched and actually quite enjoyed. And there was some talk recently of, of going back and, and and doing that series as well. Um, I don't know whether we will or not. I, I think probably we will at some point. But trouble is, I have so much work on at the moment, I can't find gap to do anything. <laughs> but uh, I'm glad, I, you know, I'm glad I did it. Um, we also covered the the novels as well, which attempt to, um, you know, explore. Explorable show sometimes some some more successful than others, um, but yeah, it was it was a it was a hard book to write because uh, we basically had to know not just know everything that the prisoner fans knew, which is like a degree course in itself. You then had to read all what they'd written, and then write something that they haven't written, something they they they, they perhaps didn't know or take it from an angle, which they would think, oh, that's interesting, as opposed to I've known this. I've read this before. Yeah. So you had to, you had to basically be um, different, and uh, that isn't so difficult when you're writing with a prisoner because, as I said, it's a, a series that can be interpreted multiple ways. But you know, you had to do, you had to do a lot of reading, and I think it took, I think it took about seven years to write. I think or was it five years? I can't remember. It was a long time. Mm-hmm. I was, we were buried in it. I mean, absolutely dreaming the prisoner and eating the prisoner, and it was, it was. We were, we were continually going over it, and then we were going back over it, and then we got the script books, and we went through the script books and um, pulled out various things, and it went to, you know, I mean, it was, it was, it was, 
it was like we were living it. You know, I think if the end, I should have been given a degree at the end of that book, to be honest. <laughs> I feel, I feel I earned that. I think I could just go up to, go back to Oxford University and say, look, see this book? I, I co-wrote this book and give me a degree now, please, because I've done the work. I, I, we probably spent a lot of money on it as well. We had to buy a lot of reference books and there was um, stuff that was available. And, and I, I, I um, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't done really as a commercial product, although it has sold well. It was it was done as it was it kind of became a, a labor of love, and sometimes I hated it. And I didn't watch the show again for several years after I'd done the book. Um, but a friend of mine asked, was interested in watching, and I watched it again last year and uh, uh, enjoyed it. So, you know, it, it didn't writing the book didn't entirely. It, it, burn out my enjoyment of the show i did i did i did recover but it was such an intense experience the bizarre thing was that when i started watching the show back when we first were asked to the book uh, i was watching an episode called the general and i decided to watch it i'd watched about i watched a couple of before and i thought oh, i quite enjoyed that one I'll, I'll watch the general and i was watching the general and uh it was three o'clock in the morning i was at my parents house at the time and i thought i better go to bed now so I went upstairs and uh, suddenly looked out the, the window and um, there was all this smoke coming past the window and I thought, what's that? And I stuck my head out and uh, next door's house was on fire. So <laughs> I immediately went downstairs and found the fire brigade and they all came round and, the, uh, and then I, I, I rushed round there and found the poor lady with part of her hair singed off um, lying in the garden. She just managed to get out of the house before it had all gone up. And, um, you know, the lucky thing was that I'd actually been watching The Prisoner uh, because if I hadn't been, I'd have been dead as completely asleep. And, um, you know, the, the house would have burned to the ground and may have even burned our house down as well. So I, I, I owe the prisoner my life, I feel. If I hadn't been watching the episode at 3 o'clock in the morning, I would have noticed next door's house burned down. Goodness me. <laughs> Remarkable story. <laughs> thank you, Patrick McGowan. Yeah. <laughs> I'm only here now because of you. Well, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to talk to us. That's fine. Great. And uh, yeah, I, I just wanted to mention what, what a terrific book it is because each episode that I rewatch and then I go and read a chapter of the book and it, it makes me think of completely new ideas about the episodes. It's, it's, it's a really good book. Well, that was the intention. The funny thing was before you uh, rang, I thought I'd better read this um, chapter again. So I read it and, uh, and I thought, oh, actually, I think I'll start. And I read a bit more. And, and while you were reading it, I was, I was, I was rereading Fallout. So when you said, don't mention Fallout, I thought, oh, I, I read <laughs> that one. I had some information about that one, but that's okay. Yeah, I, I think it's, um, I think it's, I, I, after it, when it first came out, I, I didn't want to look at the book. Um, I, you know, I, because you always find typos, you know, and I'd gone over and over and over and over and over and over and over. And I thought, I'm sure I'll open page six and bang, there we have there. And so I didn't even want to look at it. And also because it was such intense work, you you feel I need to I need to go and cleanse my palate. I need to do something else because you know you felt you you were you were I, I felt I'd gone to the village and they weren't letting me out for seven years, you know. <laughs> um, but now I, I I look back, I read it. I was reading it yesterday and today, and I thought, well, actually, it's pretty good. I yeah, I, it's quite, I'd forgotten this, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I'd forgotten that. I know someone sent me a letter uh, recently, read the book, and asked me some questions. And um, it didn't take me uh, about five minutes to sort of research it and, and answer the questions, even though they were, you know, they weren't things that necessarily appeared in the book. So I think I've still got, you know, I, I think you can, I think it's easy to get back into the mode of thinking about the prisoner and, 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 and working out all these intricate bits and pieces. 
it kind of I don't think I could have written the book I don't think we could have written the book any other way really um you know we've written a number of books now and, and each book is is different and I think each book is based on the show it's it's on and I think the prisoner that was kind of the book you know I don't I don't think I could <clears throat> I don't think I could rewrite it and make it you know any different really I think I'd just write the same damn book again yeah, actually less typos. I don't know. Probably more typos, probably. You get more lax as you get older. Yeah. Well, thanks very much again for joining us. Okay. It's a pleasure talking to you. And thank you. Be seeing you. Be seeing you. Information. Information. Thanks again to Alan for joining us. It was great talking to him all about the prisoner. Yep, and if you're interested, his co-author, Fiona Moore, uh, she was in one of our 50th anniversary episodes last year discussing The Prisoner, and I think, hopefully, she'll be returning for an episode later in our own Tally Ho podcast series to discuss the episode Dance of the Dead. Yes, and as we discussed in our chat, uh, Fallout is still available. It's on its um, umpteenth printing now, I think. Because uh, it's been a very popular book. It's it's a really interesting book if you're interested in diving more into The Prisoner. It's got chapters on every episode. It's got chapters on episode orders. It's got e- everything that you could want to uh, get yourself lost in. Yeah, and it's not just a straightforward uh, episode guide, which is what really makes it stick out. Uh, Alan and Fiona have some really insightful views on uh, what some of the underlying themes of the episodes are. Uh, and it's it's one of those things. It's a bit like uh, our podcast i suppose it's it's kind of a deep dive into things related to the episodes and and the tangents that spring up from it as well but alan and fiona probably do it a bit more coherently than we do <laughs> and we're on the home stretch now so not that much longer <laughs> here's rick davy with the latest news from the world of the prisoner This is Rick Davey of The Unmutual website at www.theunmutual.co.uk with all the latest news from the world of The Prisoner. Titan Comics have announced further editions of their forthcoming The Prisoner comic series, which can be pre-ordered or subscribed to via the Forbidden Planet website. A Diamond Edition cover variant will be available, which will include artwork from Vice Press. This artwork was originally released as a 50th anniversary poster in 2017. To coincide with the comic's release, Vice Press are reissuing remaining variants of the poster for sale. In other news, In My Mind, the 2017 documentary from Chris Rodley, is now available to stream in territories where the DVD and Blu-ray is not readily available, including Germany and the United States. For more details, visit the network website at networkonair.com. The Tally Ho special podcast interviews with Chris are still available to download. Fans of Fenella Fielding will be pleased to hear that in addition to her memoirs readings events taking place this year, on Sunday, April the 15th, she will be appearing in Just a Little Murder at the Museum of Comedy in London. Visit fenellafielding.com for details. And finally, Coit Media Limited are having a spring sale which ends on the 1st of April. Many titles are being offered at up to 60% off, including Eric Marvel's Cutting Edge Memoirs, Brian Gorman's Everyman Audio CD, the documentary Red Reflections, and other titles. That's it from me. Join me again on the next Tally Ho podcast for all the latest news from the world of The Prisoner. Be seeing you. We made it!
we made it to the end. <laughs> we keep promising they're going to get shorter and they get longer. Yes, we'd like to thank uh, Rick for giving us his news roundup from the world of The Prisoner. It's fantastic that a show as old as The Prisoner is still provoking so much debate and so much new stuff is always happening with the show. And yeah, we look forward to those every week. So thanks again to both Rick and Alan for joining us. And thank you for sticking with us for our mammoth exploration of free-for-all. Let us know your thoughts on the episode. You can drop us a line on Twitter at TFCAA or on Facebook if you're still using that. (laughs) Uh, Or um, on the website, timeforcakesnl.com. You can leave us a comment. Let us know what you think about the episode. If you've got any thoughts about free-for-all, if it's a particular favourite episode of yours. Yep, so we're going to be back in two weeks with an episode all about a real classic episode of The Prisoner, Schizoid Man. And preempting the fact that it's going to be another mammoth episode, (laughs) uh, we really think you should subscribe to the podcast and get that episode when it comes out because our special guest for that episode is the wonderful Jane Merrow who appeared in the episode itself and she joined us for a chat recently to talk about her work on the show and also her career since yes so jane's had a a long long career in film and television both in britain and in the u.s and she's still doing really interesting things now so we had a, a really fascinating chat with her about her experience of working on the prisoner with patrick mcguin and about everything that she's done since then so do tune in for that next time Yeah, but we have gone on way too long. Um, Yeah, I'd promise that we'd keep these shorter, but I'd be lying. Um, We'd like to thank you all for listening. Uh, Thank you for everyone who's getting in touch at the moment and telling us how much you're liking the podcast. Um, If you get the chance, please, if you go to iTunes or use iTunes to get the podcast, please drop us a review there and let us know about it. Um, It's really great. It kind of gets the word out about the podcast. and It's nice to know that people are listening and enjoying the episodes as well. But for now, from the tally-ho, Lightsy Zona!